Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit one million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top 5% of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Richie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode and don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts. Hey folks, just like Bobby hates rain, I hate my lawn. I've got patchy grass, tons of weeds, and I hate spending precious free time taking care of it. So I'm very interested in Sinlon. Sinlon is the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass in North America. They make safe, clean, environmentally friendly turf. No watering, no pesticides, no mowing. Their artificial grass is made from bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane, and it's made right here in the USA. Sinlon sent us a couple samples, which is a funny thing to get in the mail, but it looks and feels crazy realistic, and the kids love jumping on it. I can see how it would work great for a lawn, a playground, a patio, or anywhere else you might need some low-maintenance greenery. For instance, right now, Sinlon is running a contest to win their Dave Pell's Greenmaker Putting Green System. So you can enjoy pro-quality putting in your home or office. Go to Sinlon, S-Y-N-L-A-W-N, dot com slash 36 ftv check out their products and enter the contest by august 31st that's sinlon.com slash 36 ftv
As the co-host of a jam band podcast, I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm still pretty new to the world of CBD. But Sunset Lake CBD is a great way to give it a test run. Sunset Lake is a family-owned farm in Vermont that started as a dairy supplier for Ben & Jerry's. A couple years ago, they got into growing hemp for CBD, and they've got a whole bunch of products available in their online shop at sunsetlakecbd.com. Seriously, I had no idea there were so many different ways to use CBD. Sunset Lake has tincture and salve, gummies, CBD coffee, even flour, keef, and pre-rolls, if smoking is more your thing. Their hemp is 100% pesticide-free and organic, and everything is lab-tested so you know exactly what you're ingesting. In July, they're donating 4.2% of their online sales to the Drug Policy Alliance, a pretty good cause. So far, I've tried the gummies and found them very mellow after long bike rides. I also gave some of their pet tincture to my sister-in-law for her super high-strung dogs, who seem to enjoy it as well. If you too want to sample some Sunset Lake CBD products, we've got a promo code, VAULT15, that will give you 15% off anything in their store. Again, that's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code VAULT15. So this is a momentous episode because we have reached the one-third mark into the Dick's Pick series, uh, which doesn't seem like we're that far. I mean, we've been doing the show, I think, since February, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, most of the year so far, yeah. So like, if this were like the Lord of the Rings series, like we'd be at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> That's right. Are you a big Tolkien head? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was, but I was just trying to think of like some like epic analogy that you know that we could make to our right, journey yeah. here. You know, and, and Tolkien was the first thing that came to mind. Star Wars, uh, not literary enough. We could be at the end of A New Hope, well, getting our medals. I guess yeah, that's true. We could do Star <laughs> Wars. I don't know. Lord of the Rings just came to mind for yeah. some reason. But like, like, how are you feeling? Like, are you feeling good? I mean, we had that break in the middle here so like it's not like we've been doing it continuously since february but are you feeling any grateful dead fatigue or do you still feel oh, strong definitely still strong yeah no i mean the break was good uh, we uh we did what the dead should have done and taken a break <laughs> recharged our batteries <laughs> so i guess they kind of did that not long after today's show uh but yeah you know it i i, I my my theory for a long time and i've seen other people say this too i, I I think it was in the Long Strange Trip documentary and Nick Palmgarten's talked about this like in the New Yorker article he wrote about the dead but they're one of those bands that the more you listen to them the more you want to listen to them just because you get so many the more versions of songs you have in your head the better each subsequent version is so kind of turning the corner on this first third I feel like we've just done the like initial survey of the landscape of Grateful Dead history and now we're going back uh, to some eras that we've already heard once before in the series. And it's now it's where the real enjoyment happens because you're, you've established the baseline and now you're digging in even farther and doing some close-up comparisons. So, yeah, no, I'm not tired at all. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the last couple have really recharged my batteries because like, we've been feasting on the filet of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah. 
you know? It's very like, oh yeah, I, I feel great about this band. And I mean, this whole this whole summer tour too. I mean, we're we're not really going into any like you know dark areas. Like in in the first season, we did go into some you know soul killing eras a little bit, or like you know, some of the albums like weren't as strong. That's, yeah, soul killing is let's harsh. Let's just say, think, but yeah, soul killing is harsh. But you know, like, but like Dick's Picks Nine was not like the best way to end that <laughs> season. That was kind of like a hard yeah. go, I think. So like if we had like a bunch of Dick's Picks nines, it would be much more exhausting, I think. But you know, when you're hanging out in September '72, like we were in the last episode, or you know, in this episode, we're in June of '74. I mean, these are like some of the greatest months in Grateful mm-hmm. Dead history. So you know, not only are we listening to these Dick's Picks, we're listening to shows around the Dick's Picks, and it's it, it's just so much greatness. So it, it's been feeling really good. I mean. It does make me think, I mean, we periodically return to this subject of, like, what our favorite Dick's Picks albums are mm-hmm. so far. And I, 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 it comes back to mind for this episode because, you know, we're one-third into our journey here. You know, we're at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. We're at the end of A New Hope. Um, but also, I feel like Dick's Picks 12 is one of those albums that, like, a lot of people put at or near the top of their favorite Dick's Picks records. So I, I'm just curious for you, you know, we're, we're not going to tip our hands yet too much on how we feel about Dick's Picks 12, but are you still feeling like the same in terms of like what your favorite Dick's Picks are so far? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm stubborn and I'm still clinging to volume four as my favorite favorite, which has been my favorite for 20 some years. Uh, yeah, it's just it's tough to knock it off, and I know this one is one that people flagged very early on that they couldn't wait for us to get to, and for good reason. But yeah, I don't know if it's uh, dethroned the champion for me yet. You know, How about you, Steve? Well, it's interesting because like this album in particular, Dick's Picks Twelve, it got me thinking about not just albums but like discs. Mm-hmm. You know, because I feel like Dick's Picks Twelve is very much about three separate discs and it's almost like the albums the album is set up that way for each disc to kind of stand on its own so i was thinking about like other dicks picks and like my favorite discs from those albums and i think Mm -hmm. like when you say dicks picks four i think like the second disc is the one is like the real kind of money of that and that's got that's the dark star and uh the other one is on that and it's like you know 60 minutes of just amazingness and then disc one of dicks picks eight which is the acoustic disc you know that's an amazing disc you know and that might be my favorite so far it's certainly in the conversation i think one of the discs from the album we're going to talk about today would also be in that conversation of like my favorite disc of the dicks picks that we've talked about so far so i'm 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 excited to get into that i'm excited that we're not fatigued yet i'm curious (laughs) if we ever will hit the wall in this uh series like like when we get to like you know 27 are we just gonna be (laughs) you know like bob odenkirk and jonathan banks and better call saul like when they're walking through the desert and drinking their own urine to survive right. you know? we're discussing it, our like 18th tennessee jed <laughs> right <laughs> you know that's another thing too like no tennessee jed 
in this album. <laughs> I know, Spoiler yeah. alert. No Everybody Tennessee can relax. Jed. No Tennessee <laughs> yep. Judd bashing uh, other than what we're doing right now, I guess. Well, but, I'm just yeah. saying, like, that's another <laughs> thing, you know, if we're talking about endurance and making it right. through this series, to hit an album where there's no Tennessee Jed when you've had, you know, I think it was three in a row that we had with yeah. Jed. It was like, it was like it four out of five. back to last season even, yeah. Yeah, tons of Jed. So getting a Jed vacation... Is always is always nice. We know Jed is waiting for us later. <laughs> Jed's yes. always out there. He's like yes. Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men. You avoid him for one day, but Jed's going to get you later. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I'm feeling really good so far. I got to say too, you know, we were texting about Dick's Picks Twelve. You know, we were both listening to it obviously separately, and I was uh, telling you about how like I I recently got back from a cabin trip. With my family, I went up to the Minnesota Northwoods, and I was basically just parked next to a lake for five days, and I was going on a pontoon boat for five days, and you know, I listened to a lot of Grateful Dead, I listened to a lot of Dick's Picks 12, and I feel like I have to give that disclaimer at the start of this episode, because I feel like the cabin bias is a very mm. real thing yeah, when that's you're assessing like the... dead records. That's pretty much the ideal setting, right? We've talked about oh, how yeah. July is one of the, the peak dead listening months. So you're listening to a June, late June dead show in July in the woods with some beverages by a Absolutely. lake. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's like, uh, how... that's really going to distort your uh, critical <laughs> acumen here, I think, Steve. So well, we'll you put know, a flag and, on that. I mean, I think, you know, again, you know, we don't want to tip the hand too much, but I think it's clear that this is a very good album. So you already have good material and then you're in a great environment. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be enhanced. You know, if I was listening to like, you know, a summer 1994 show and I was <laughs> texting you about how this was like the greatest dead period of all time, <laughs> then we would maybe want to call St- out the, the cabin bias. Yeah. Stage bit. and intervention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got to listen to this one on like a long drive, which is oh. something that I haven't really been doing much since March, but we took a little day trip which required about five hours in the car in one day. Uh, So I got to listen to it in the car, which was great, though I did have to listen to it with my family in the car. And I got to say, Dick Specs 12, not the most (laughs) family-friendly Grateful Dead selection. Uh, Particularly Sea Stones was greeted with... uh, a lot oh, of what the heck are we listening to? <laughs> so, and then on the way back, I had to listen to it while my son sat in the back and rapped along with Hamilton on his iPad. So, that was a <laughs> my own personal remix of Disc Three of Dix Picks Twelve. So, oh, man. the road trip normally a great way to listen to the dead. Nice long road trip, nice long dead show, but uh, it's it still was nice. I still appreciated it uh, yeah. in a, in I, one of its natural settings. I there's no way in hell I could get away with playing a Dick's Picks on a family trip. I that would have to be like, you know, I'd have to go to the headphones with that. <laughs> yeah, I or, unless it was you know a very song oriented Grateful Dead record. Mm-hmm. You know, I think my wife would tolerate that. But yeah, like Dick's Picks Twelve, you get the twenty seven minute jam after Weather Report Suite. Yeah, not gonna, not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, the the kids didn't want to hear my discourse on the thematic <laughs> jams of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> All right, everyone. By the way, this is thirty six from the vault, yes. and you know we should introduce ourselves. I, I noticed we have not done that at all this season. I don't think oh, we've okay. said our own names. 
you think we should or do you think it's just like a given <laughs> if you've come this far no we should because you know, this is going to be an episode that you know maybe people who haven't given this a try so far people like to expect 12 and want to hear what these two randos have to say yeah. so yeah so i'm rob rob mitchum and i'm uh steve hyden you know th- this is a little bit like jerry garcia walking out in 1974 and saying hello everyone i'm jerry garcia <laughs> yes and we're the grateful some dad. songs for you yeah <laughs> which you know maybe they should have done that maybe there would have been you know maybe there are people in the audience who are like oh who, who's this guy who's this guy with the, <laughs> you know, who's, who's the lead singer i'd like to know well, his name yeah, well, I was joking with a friend today, actually, about the Grateful Dead movie and uh, how at that show they lower down this, like, really janky uh, light rig that has Grateful Dead spelled out on it uh, towards the end of the show. And I was like, yeah, you know, maybe some people there forgot what band they were watching. <laughs> like, things, it's things like, is this the Doobie pr- Brothers? Intense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Steve Miller Band? Oh, it's the Grateful Dead. All right. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Okay, Thank you for the banner. Everybody. That's yeah. a very, like, uh, 90s punk band thing to do too like you know 90s punk bands always had the banner you know like if you're on the yeah. warp tour it's like oh it's goldfinger or you know it's rancid right no the you first the uh the first concert i ever went to of my own volition was aerosmith in the 90s and they Ooh. their their light rig like reconformed at the end to form the aerosmith logo i remember was that Very distinctly like uh get a grip era or was that, that was the get a grip tour with uh Ooh. i saw megadeth open for, wow! Uh, at the World Music Theater, the 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 site of Brent's last show. So, there's always a dead connection, right? Well, I was gonna say this is 36 from the Vault. We're gonna be talking about Aerosmith on the Get a Grip tour <laughs> with Megadeth. Yeah, 1993. I remember. Uh, no, I was, I was, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I was gonna digress on the, on top of that digression, but let's get into the show. <laughs> uh, we're gonna be talking about Dick's Picks 12. This is called from two shows. June 26, 1974 at the Providence Civic Center and June 28, 1974 at the Boston Garden. And uh, yeah, like we said, this is like a very well-regarded Dick's Pick. So I am excited to get into it. Nineteen seventy-four, one of Dick's favorite eras. Uh, I was reminded in researching this show that he actually prefers nineteen seventy-three to nineteen seventy-four. If you're keeping score at home, but certainly he had plenty of great things to say about nineteen seventy-four, and yeah, he was very, very fond of these shows uh, and talked about them in interviews even before, long before this uh, set came out. Which should mention, this one came out in October of nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, we're back to the compilation format, as Steve said. It's uh, combining two shows instead of giving you the one full show experience. Uh, it seems like it's kind of almost every other uh, set now. Every other volume is full show or highlights packaging. So 
yeah, it seems like at this point they had really hit a format that they liked where, you know, if they felt like it justified it, they would just give you the highlights of a run instead of uh, a show in its entirety. I don't know how you feel about this, but for me, this album, using the compilation format, it feels a little bit different. Like, I feel like with the other compilation shows that we've heard in the Dick's Pick series, that there is an attempt to replicate the feel of one show. So even if it's pulling from different sources, they're structuring it in a way that it'd be like, well, we're kind of giving you the Frankenstein version of what a show would have been like from this run. And listening to this record, I don't really feel like they tried to do that, or if they tried to do that, it doesn't really come off. Like, to me, this feels like three separate discs. And I do feel, I guess, that it maybe was done that way intentionally because every disc, it starts with like a good jam vehicle and it ends like with some like climactic ballad. And it has the arc of what you would expect from like a two set Grateful Dead show, like on each disc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how you feel about that. Like for me, when I was listening to this album, I was contextualizing it that way in my mind. Like, not really listening to it as like, oh, the first disc is just like the first part of the show. It was almost like, well, this is like its own like mini show. And then the second disc is like a mini show. And the third disc is another mini show. Um, And that's how it made sense to me. And I mean, I really love this album. I mean, I think we've already made that clear that like we're, I think we're both pretty big fans of this show, um, of, of this album. But I don't know, like, what did you think about, like, the formatting of this record? Yeah. No, I really like that take on it as being, as working, like, the the volume works as three standalone discs. I totally agree with that and hadn't really thought of that before. Uh, I think that is happenstance more than design because there's very little sort of mumbo jumbo <laughs> in terms of how they track this things out it it pretty much is just set two from these two nights though they cut off the start of june 26 set two uh and they just put them in order and fit them on discs as you know well as they could and so you get that second disc which is has the encore of june 26th and then you know uh, goes into the I guess set break <laughs> and then the set two of June 28th so uh, the fact that it works that way I think is just a happy accident uh, but I, I agree with you that it does work that way and that you can pull just one disc out of this one and get a pretty full experience you don't get just sort of like the you know especially the one the volumes that are full shows a lot of times that first disc and the first set might be kind of a dud <laughs> or uh you know a little harder of a listen than than later on in the set i i did find myself comparing dick's picks 12 a lot to dave's picks 34 mm-hmm. which came out earlier this year and because that's from a show uh it, it's june 23rd 1974 um and that's the complete show as far as i understand i don't think that there's anything that's taken out of there i mean it's certainly sequenced like a regular show and then it's interesting because there's actually a bonus disc that came out with that that's from the June 23rd show. And it, that feels like 
the like one of the dicks picks 12 discs because that is essentially i think like a good chunk of like the second set mm-hmm. i think it's about an hour or so um and i kind of like that more than like the dave's picks 34 proper um i don't know it, it's, it's it's very interesting about 74 because it is such a great grateful dead year and june 74 in particular i mean there's so many great shows you know june 16th is another like very well regarded show that was released as like one of the road trips discs so you could certainly like listen to a complete show from this time and 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 totally enjoy it but it's interesting to me that this was a compilation and then dicks pick seven which is the only other 74 dicks picks that we've heard so far that was also a compilation yeah and and that one's way more heavy-handed in terms of how they tracked it out yeah every disc has us has songs from different nights on it i just wonder like if there was a a compulsion to just be like well this is such a great era that we just want to have the gold like the gold is (laughs) so shiny and valuable that you know even if like the first set songs are enjoyable it's like we know what we what we really want from this era, so we're just going to focus on that. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just interesting to me that this is like such a great era, but like this is like the the the, the shows that are being you know compiled rather than just presented as is. Right. Well, my worry whenever we get into this conversation is that we don't know how good the tapes were, <laughs> so there could be a really boring answer to all of these uh, questions about why did they include this and not that and. One thing about 74 that is important to note is that all the tapes in the vaults, I believe, were recorded by Kid Candelario, who was a member of the Dead's crew. Uh, uh, At this point, he was mostly taking care of Keith and Phil's equipment, and then he was in charge of taping the show uh, basically just for the band to review. Like They would take the tapes... Uh, back in the hotel afterwards or after when they had a break on tour and he was the one that was responsible for making sure everybody had a recording and could listen back to what they had been doing and i think you know this i I think this one this volume sounds great and we've heard a couple other kate candelario recordings i think volume one was a candelario and uh six pick seven of course also from 74 uh but I do think that he's talked about in interviews that while taping was one of his jobs, he also was responsible for running around and fixing broken amps and things that were going haywire with the wall of sound. So he wasn't able to just sit there and record like Betty was, for instance, or like Bear was. So there probably are bigger gaps in these tapes than from some other eras of the dead. So my suspicion is that like the Dix Pick 7 set for sure was sort of dancing around some poor quality tapes from the vaults that they had at the time. I don't know if that's the case for this one, but I do think that is kind of true for a lot of 73, 74 releases that they had to work with what they, what they had available. I think as this album as presented i i like how it sounds it it definitely isn't of like the betty level quality where you feel like oh this just could have been released as a legitimate live record like i i think this isn't quite up to that but you know i we've talked about this before like the fidelity of dick's picks for me has always been the ideal for like grateful dead live recordings that uh they sound better than odds obviously but like they're a little grungier than like you would get from a proper live record yeah um so it's the best of both worlds and i feel like you get that from this record on top of 
the dead just playing incredibly well. You right. know, it always helps when the dead themselves are playing fantastic. It makes you forgive maybe any sonic deficiencies that might arise. Another thing we have to say, too, for this album, this is the last flying ticket carpet <laughs> album cover. Yeah. And I think it's the best one, actually. It's my favorite one. <laughs> the, like, uh, skeleton patriot playing <laughs> some sort of... It's not even a guitar, right? It's like a lute. <laughs> I'm not sure what uh, string no, it's a, no, supposed to be. It's a guitar. It is a guitar, okay. Yeah, no, it's a guitar, yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. I lo- yeah, I lo- it's, yeah, it's like the evil patriot. It's sort of like <laughs> the Raiders and the Patriots mascots yeah. put together into one. It does remind me of the old Patriots helmets. That's true. I love those um, old uh, the the Patri- the tricorner hat guy hiking a football. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. And uh, after this, we're gonna go back to well, it's gonna be like the the black bottom, but now there's gonna be like this sort of psychedelic fantasia yeah. on the top half. Fractals. We're, we're getting the, into fractals. We're getting into fractals. Fractals for the rest of the of the tour. Pretty much, uh, yeah. From, from here on for out. the rest of the series, yeah. It's uh, no. I mean, yeah. they. I, I mean, once we get into like the the twenties, I think that's when the covers really start to go downhill. <laughs> I I'm a fan of like the. I mean, obviously the red and black, huge fan of the uh, you know the the flying carpet ticket thing, kind of hit or miss, but you know I think it had it had its attributes. I think it actually gets better with the psychedelic Fantasia fractals and then with the black on the bottom. I, I, I really like that format. I like okay. the black bottom thing. I, it makes it look a little bit more industrial. I, I, I dig that. Um, but yeah, once we get into the 20s and they start doing these sort of like, you know, black light poster looking things. Yeah, I don't that's know. what they look like to me too. Yeah, or like a screensaver. Yeah, it's like a like a paused screensaver, <laughs> and Goes it's like it, it's kind of a shame because you know what you know credit to the Dave's picks which have had really cool oh, yeah. art. I think like you oh, talked man. about the Miami one, which is one of the best, and they were you know working with a cool theme because they were already because they were playing at the Hialeah Arena <laughs> in Miami, yeah. so the the artists could work off of that. But yeah, every Dave's picks that comes out looks looks great. Like yeah, something they, I, I definitely need to add. Yeah. They definitely like you know learn lessons from the mistakes of the past with Dave's picks artwork, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and even with the Grateful Dead's checkered history of like you know questionable archival album covers, uh, yeah, Dave's picks has always been pretty strong. So well, let's set up the show here. We're going to be talking about two different music venues here. Um, the first one is the Providence Civic Center. Now known as the Dunkin' Donuts Center. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep, it got uh, eaten up by the corporate naming trend. Yeah, so I believe we've talked about this in the past, that minor league hockey arenas are sort of the jam band natural habitat. And oh, yeah. The Providence Civic Center fits this perfectly because uh, they've just had a succession of minor league hockey teams playing there. Uh, the Providence Reds, the New England T-Men, what a great... Uh, sports nickname and uh today it's the providence bruins which is boring just you know the bruins minor league team uh providence college basketball plays there uh and then uh we would be remiss if we didn't note that the providence civic center was 
uh, is a also a classic fish venue. It's still yes. around today. Uh, they played the Dunkin' Donuts Center a couple years ago, I believe. Uh, but it was uh, one of the two venues played on the island tour, which we discussed back in our Curveball episode. There was uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and then the uh, Nassau uh, Coliseum on Long Island. So uh, the Pro- Providence Civic Center was still kicking it 26 years later and still producing classic shows was that where they got the baker's dozen idea it was dunkin donuts that's the that's the backstory of that is that they wanted to do it at the dunkin donuts center but yeah eventually decided that madison square garden was a better location for it i bet jerry liked dunkin donuts i bet he was a (laughs) dunkin donuts fan certainly by the end by the (laughs) 90s a lot of donuts backstage at jerry's room i think yeah probably uh the other venue is the Boston Garden, um, which is a venue you know I associate with the Boston Celtics, mm-hmm. the parquet floor. Yeah. Uh, also, the Boston Bruins played there for years. Boston Garden was opened in uh, 1928. Uh, it had just under 16,000 capacity for rock shows. Um, and it closed, uh, I guess it was about 70 years later. It was uh, September of 1995. And then it was demolished three years later. Uh, the Grateful Dead played the Boston Garden more than any other rock band. They played there 24 times between 1973 and 1994. They were actually supposed to be the last rock band to play there. They had a uh, a six-show stand scheduled there in September of 95. But then, of course, Jerry died the previous month. Uh, the Dicks picked 17, which we're going to be talking about, I guess in a couple of months, is also taken from the Boston Garden. So we're hitting the garden here twice. I was digging into the history of the Boston Garden a little bit in terms of like famous shows there. I think maybe the most famous show was the James Brown show, the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yeah. Um, famously played a show there that night that was credited it's... with helping keep the peace in Boston. Yeah, amazing show. You can find it on YouTube, too, if you ever want to watch it. That's a... I That's think there's a like watch. a documentary just about that show. Too. Yeah. It's a chapter um, in Ryan Walsh's book, too, about Astral Weeks, which also provides a lot of good context for that. So, yeah, cool music history moment. Yeah, I think there's probably more about James Brown than Van Morrison in that book. <laughs> there might be, yeah. Is, is my guess. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, that like two famous rock bands were arrested before shows at the Boston <laughs> Garden. <laughs> Sounds like, like Boston, yeah. Uh, like members of the Rolling Stones were arrested in 1972. Uh, before an alter- like for, there was apparently some altercation uh, with a photographer. I couldn't find out like which stones were arrested. Hmm. Like in all the news articles I read, it just talked about there were like a couple members of the band were detained, and the mayor apparently had to beg the cops to let the stones go so they could perform this concert. And uh, they finally went on at like quarter to one in the morning. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Uh, and then a couple years later, the Who were arrested uh, for trashing a hotel room in Quebec. Wow! Like the previous night, they were going to get extradited to Canada. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the deal there was. <laughs> uh, and then apparently, two years after that, in 1975, Led Zeppelin was banned from the Boston Garden because uh, before one of their shows, the the the, the garden people like let their fans into the venue because it was really cold outside. Um, and let him wait in there. And then, like, the fans rioted and, like, trashed mm. the place. Okay. So then Zeppelin was banned 
for five years. Yeah. So, it, like, you know, speaking of the weather conditions, like you noted in here that there was no air conditioning in the Boston Garden, which yes, uh, this Grateful Dead show is uh, June twenty eighth. <laughs> like, it probably was not very pleasant if they didn't have air conditioning, and it's weird that they were playing. You know, we got two indoor shows here in late June. I wonder if it had something to do with the wall of sound not really being an outdoor ready setup. Uh, That's a good point. It's, uh, it, you know, we talk about context because we want to put you in the uh, shoes of people who are at these shows. And I think the shoes of people who are at these shows were pretty sweaty and gross. Pretty sweaty. Yeah, it, it just makes me think about the, you know, again, one of our favorite Grateful Dead venues, the Hollywood Sportatorium. Uh, from Dick's Ooh, Picks yeah. 3. I remember there was no air conditioning there either. I wonder like, if that was just a relatively common thing in the 70s. Yeah. You just didn't have AC. Well, the garden uh, was probably... like like That predates the invention of air conditioning. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, true. So that's probably a factor. I'm trying to remember like the, the garden is entwined in my memory with the with Chicago Stadium, which I went was able to go to a lot for Bulls games and never saw a concert there, but... I, I can't remember if they had air conditioning there or not. I guess I was always there in the winter, so maybe it didn't matter. But yeah, it was smoky and sticky, even at the best of times. And I imagine the garden was no no different. Yeah, I read a story about how during the 1984 NBA Finals, there was a game where it was 97 degrees inside the Boston Garden. Wow. And, you know, players were falling over and on oxygen tanks. And, I mean, the NBA Finals, that would have been around this time. You know, like, you know, true, that was too. in June, probably, of 84. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure it was not comfortable. And also all the racism, too, in Boston. I'm sure that raised <laughs> the temperature in the Boston Garden. So, you know, it wasn't comfortable. Um, in terms of dead history, uh, summer of 74, June of 74, should probably mention that the, from the Mars Hotel dropped. Yeah. Right in the middle of this run between these shows on June 27th, 1974. That's amazing, and, yeah. Yeah, and this Dick's Picks in, includes three songs from that record, U.S. Blues, Scarlet Begonias, and Ship of Fools. Um, and I imagine, I can't remember the entire set list of, like this, the, of those two shows. I imagine that they probably played a couple more mm-hmm. in the first set from that record. Yeah. Not that the dead were ever totally committed to album promotion like <laughs> when they were putting out records. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, you, you know, we talked about Dick's Pick 7, which was just three months after the show. And I mean, do you feel like there I mean, I felt like there was a difference um, between those shows because June of 74 to me, again, like I listened to like a bunch of shows from this month, you know, getting ready to talk about this album it's such a great period for them and i feel like by september they were already feeling that burnout that was going to cause them to retire basically yeah. from the road the following month you know at that winterland run i mean did, yeah did you sense any of that at all like listening to this record well that's a good point because we talked a lot of about in that episode about how the Europe 74 tour was kind of a dud and that they had some jet lag issues, some drug issues, some show cancellation issues. Some why did we bring this massive PA system over to Europe issues? And I think you can hear a little bit of that in Dick's pick seven. We talked about how 
the jet lag definitely feels very palpable in those concerts. Uh, so yeah, if the main storyline of 74 is, I think, the wall of sound and them just going totally 100% maximalist on the Grateful Dead sonic experience <laughs> in 1974, uh, June is probably so well remembered because it was when all the sort of technical kinks had been worked out and they were just like flying on the sound they had developed at this point on the big, huge speaker system they had behind them. And, you know, the Sea Stones set was a nightly staple. So they had that added weirdness to the, to from night to night uh, to build off of. And, yeah, I think it's. I think you're right that this is sort of the peak of the hill of 1974, and then it was all sort of a, a roll down to, you know, this this has gotten a little out of control, and we need to take a break. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. Hi everyone, this is Steve from 36 from the Vault, and look, I know a lot of you out there are very hairy people. You're Wookiees for crying out loud. And now that you've been stuck in quarantine, you're even hairier than usual. It's time to get a nice shave. So let me tell you about a company called Harry's. If you switch to Harry's for your razor needs, you're gonna save a ton of money. You're going to save enough money to buy 26 cups of coffee in New York City. You're going to save enough money to pay for six months of your Netflix subscription. Uh, so if you want to get involved in Harry's, where's a good place to get started? Well, right now, Harry's is offering a free trial set to our listeners. Uh, what you want to do is you want to go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV. Again, that's harrys.com backslash 36FTV, and you're going to get this trial set. Now, what comes in the trial set? You get the weighted ergonomic handle, you get the five-blade razor, you get the rich lathering shave gel, and, of course, you get the travel blade cover. What is the travel blade cover? I don't know, but I think you should order the set to find out. So what you want to do is, again, go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV and start shaving and saving today. Well, let's set up the scene here before we uh, get into the show. Just talk a little bit about what else was happening in pop culture 
the during the final week of 1974 when the dead played this show the number one song in america billy don't be a hero by bob donaldson and the haywoods i had never heard the name bob donaldson and the haywoods before <laughs> but i do know the song billy don't be a hero and i think i mainly know that song just from watching television in the 90s and seeing like time life commercials for like am gold compilations <laughs> so yeah. it'd be like that song and like the night chicago died and chevy van mm-hmm. like all those kind of songs and like we are in the heart of that era yeah um right now i do you know that song i had never heard that song <laughs> before listening for this episode uh i think it's bo donaldson not bob donaldson what's did i say bob yeah, I only correct oh. because Bo Donaldson is like 50% funnier <laughs> of a name <laughs> for a pop star. But yeah, they were kind of like a, like a, you know, boy bandy sort of thing, I think. Like they were closer to like the Osmonds or... Uh, it's such a long who name. Am I, who am I thinking of? Saturday, who, who sang Saturday Night? Oh, uh, Bay City Rollers. Yeah, yeah. They kind of remind me of that, right? That's sort of the... The, the the scene i guess if you could call I don't it know. that the same body but like who's bo donaldson that he's got to step out from the haywoods can't they just be called <laughs> the haywoods i know like, like bob like bo Do- I, I keep calling him bob donaldson because i don't know who he is no one cares who you are <laughs> bo you don't need to separate yourself from the haywoods it's like such a long unwieldy name like the haywoods it sounds like a family name already but then you got bo donaldson separate from it doesn't make any sense and the song was Uh, even a cover i found out like it's a cover of a band called paper lace from england oh so it's like uh well paper lace i think does the night that chicago died yeah so that makes sense that's paper lace paper lace they were the uh i don't know they were (laughs) the bob dylan of whatever you call this (laughs) (laughs) boy bands (laughs) the the beatles of forgettable am rock songs from the 70s yeah. um one song that was big from this time that i love is sundown by yeah. gordon lightfoot um and uh we're gonna be talking about gordon lightfoot again here in a minute but i'll just say like you know lightfoot to me is a little underappreciated because he was a contemporary of like neil young and Joni mitchell they all came up together uh not so much Neil Young, I guess, because he went to L.A. like pretty early on, leaving Canada. But Gordon Lightfoot is Canadian, came up in that you know Toronto coffee shop scene, mm-hmm. and he knew Joni Mitchell at that time. I don't know if you saw that Martin Scorsese documentary, uh, Rolling Thunder Review. Yeah, uh, there's that scene like where Dylan and Joni Mitchell are playing coyote together, mm-hmm. and that's actually at Gordon Lightfoot's house. Oh, cool! But like Lightfoot isn't in the movie. Yeah, and it's like I feel like he gets shuttled off into the easy listening category, mm-hmm. and he doesn't have like that sort of rock credibility that like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan have. Uh, but he's got like a really strong catalog, I think, and certainly Gord's Gold, which I feel like every parent has on vinyl. Like at least if if you're a Gen Xer, I feel like your if your parents had records, they probably had Gord's Gold. Um, I don't think really my parents had Gord's Gold, though I would have uh, laughed heartily at that album name. Like oh, that's man. a different time where you could get away with calling a, an album Gord's Gold. Well, I guess it's he, just very Canadian. 
it's crazy too because he looks exactly like Brian Cranston on the cover too. I mean, yeah, he does. Other, Absolutely, that's what I thought the, too. The other joke about him at that time, although he doesn't look like that now, like he looks pretty weathered. There's like a new yeah. documentary that just came out about him. Uh-huh. That's pretty good. I think it's called "If I Could Read Your Mind." I don't know. If you just search Gordon Lightfoot documentary, you'll find it. Uh, <laughs> How many can there be? <laughs> yeah. But he kind of looks like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of that that uh, singer song. He looks like Jimmy Lee Gilmore. You know, mm. Do you know him? He's yeah, like yeah. In, he's in uh, The Big Lebowski. If you don't, who, don't know who Jimmy Lee Gilmore is, he's in The Big Lebowski. He's like the guy that John Goodman pulls a gun on in the right. bowling Smoky, alley. Smokey, I think, right? Yeah. But he looks like that now, except like more weathered. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, and also uh, we should say because there's always a dead connection that the dead covered Gordon Lightfoot's "Early Morning Rain." Yeah, in like 1965, I think. One of their first studio sessions, I believe. Yeah, Phil yeah. sings it. It's pretty good. I like it. It kind of turns it into like a pretty generic garage rock song. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 nice. Phil sings it and sounds. I thought it was Pigpen singing it at first, but I had to look it up, and it turns out it was Phil back when he could uh, hold a pitch. I guess <laughs> it was singing one of those songs. Well. Yeah, I think it was like one of those songs that like everyone covered. Like Bob Dylan covers it on Self Portrait. Yeah. Too. Um, so anyway, Gordon Lightfoot. And we might as well say the number one album in the country this week was Sundown by Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. The, and I like the album. S- the album, yeah. I like the song yeah. Sundown a lot. I do too. I think, yeah. I think a lot of that stuff is kind of in one ear and out the other. But yeah, the song Sundown has a little more teeth to it. It's got a nice guitar solo. I don't know who right. plays a guitar solo on it, but. Kind of yeah. bluesy, a little dark, yeah. you know? Yeah, kinda exactly. Dark edge. Carefree Highway is also on that album. That's like a very pleasurable summertime jam. I I, I think I listened to Carefree Highway when I was on the pontoon boat. That's a very (laughs) pontoon boat type song. Uh, Other big albums of this time, Band on the Run by Paul McCartney. Uh, The Sting soundtrack. Yeah. I can't believe Uh, that was as big as it was. Like I saw that The Entertainer was also in the top 10 singles. People were really like just jamming clarinet solos like in 1974 it's well i gotta say i mean that piano lick i think is pretty catchy i gotta say like my son heard the entertainer in some movie and he's an entertainer fan now. <laughs> my eight-year-old <laughs> son so, he's an entertainer head <laughs> scott joplin man wow he he uh he translates uh elton john's caribou was big at this time john denver's greatest hits and back home again uh was also pretty big uh, you may know this before the flood, the Bob Dylan and band live record, uh, came out like a week before this show. Right. Which has a very different vibe than this Grateful Dead performance, I think. Yes. Uh, that 
Before the Flood is like, in my mind, I don't know if this is actually true for legal purposes, I will disclaim, but it feels like one of the most coked up live albums to me. Like everything just feels like it's being played at an intensity that is not natural. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. It's just shouting. It's just Dylan shouting. Yeah. Like throughout the whole thing. And it's definitely an interesting contrast with like the Rolling Thunder shows that are going to happen like a year later, which I mm-hmm. think are way better. Like the Rolling Thunder tour. Also because he had so many new songs too, whereas Before the Flood is just greatest hits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of 60s songs. Um, the number one film in America this week in, in June Chinatown. Yeah. Um, which I think maybe the greatest film made by like one of the worst people in the world. Yeah. It's kind of the, uh, it's like the Mexicali blues of directors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. I, did we talk, was Chinatown still number one by the time the Dick's Pick Seven show rolled around? Cause I feel like we I, I might know. have talked about Chinatown. But yeah, Chinatown is, is great. And, I don't know. Maybe I'll watch it again someday, but well, you know, give it's kind of like Woody Robert. Allen where I can't really separate things. But although with Chinatown, at least you could say like Robert Town's screenplay is very well regarded. You can give yeah. Robert Town a lot of credit. You know, obviously, Jack Nicholson is great. There's a lot of other, you know, filmmaking is a collaborative medium. We can dismantle the auteur theory here. <laughs> All right. You know, like films, you know, with Woody, I feel like it's harder because he's the star, he's the writer, he's the director. Yeah. It's kind of autobiographical. Yeah, you, know. you can't you can't really get rid of Woody. Roman Polanski, though, again, he's made some incredible movies. It's like, it, it, it's very hard to, uh, you know, it's like Rosemary's Baby is incredible, but, you know, I guess you just want to give credit to other people. In that instance, too. Um, Another great movie that came out around this time was The Parallax View. Yeah. uh, Which is, like, one of the great sort of, like, paranoid 70s films. Like, you know, this political conspiracy movie starring Warren Beatty, directed by Alan J. I think it's Pacula? Pacula. I want to say Palooka, but it's Pacula. Yeah. Who who, um, also directed All the President's Men. That was his film after this. And then... Clute with Jane Fonda. Yeah. I feel like Clute, Parallax View, and All the President's Men are sometimes grouped together into a trilogy that people call the Paranoid Trilogy. Yeah. Very 70s, like forces larger than you are conspiring against you and you have to like uncover it. You just saw the Parallax View, right? Yeah, I just watched it. Uh, I'm trying to catch up to your uh, film geekery as we've established (laughs) in previous episodes. I don't know how you had time to be both. Uh, to watch all these movies and listen to all this music because I felt like early on in my life I decided I'm going to listen to all the music and put the movies to the side but I'm trying to catch up now so I watched that movie to get myself in a nice mind frame I, I learned that Robert Town uh, did a, a, a ghostwriting pass on this script so we can credit Robert Town with being part of this paranoid vibe of 1974 for sure oh yeah but uh, I, I haven't seen Clute. Is it also about a hot journalist? Like a journalist that's way too hot to be an actual newspaper reporter? No, Jane Fonda plays like a escort who oh, gets okay. involved in like some intrigue. And then Donald Sutherland is a, is a cop who yeah. is trying to you know, save her. I, don't know, I haven't seen Clute in a long time. That'd be worth rewatching. So no uh, uh, beautiful journalists doing 
like impressively <laughs> glamorous things that journalists, no. actual journalists never get to do. No, because uh, that's yeah, the thing that jumped out to me was like you're watching Warren Beatty and he's trying to be like this downtrodden <laughs> like guy, recovering alcoholic, you know, really wants to do, dig into these investigative stories. And you're like, man, you're Warren Beatty. You would never settle to be, uh, you know, an ink stained wretch. Well, and his hair looks amazing, too. It's like oh, a my helmet God. of like, you know, just masculine brown wavy hair. Yeah, you know, very 1974 hair. Anyway, that's, Parallax is ex- exactly what my uh, quarantine hair looks like right now. <laughs> exactly. uh, if you want to imagine what I look like at home, maybe Steve too. I haven't seen Steve in a while, so my wife cuts my hair, so I look pretty good actually. <laughs> okay. um, I was gonna say Parallax View. I highly recommend it. I I believe it's on Amazon Prime. That's where I watched um, it. Shout out so, Amazon Prime. So so give it a look. Um, number one show in the country. All in the family. Yeah. <laughs> wow, we're, we're actually getting flack now online for talking about... I, we haven't really even talked about All in the Family. We just bring it up every show. <laughs> I know. We we just spent like a half hour on Gordon Lightfoot in the Parallax view. <laughs> we're we're going to blow through All in the Family. And then, then, and then after that, we have The Waltons, Sanford yeah. and Son, MASH, and Hawaii Five-0. Hawaii Five-0 has been like making a couple appearances lately. Yeah. In the top five. I've never seen Hawaii. I'm kind of intrigued by Hawaii. I I like the idea of people solving crimes in Hawaii in the Mm -hmm. 70s. That sounds like a pretty enjoyable show. That was like a thing. Because like Magna P.I. did that too. He was in Hawaii, I think. I get those confused. Because he wore a lot of Hawaiian shirts. So I don't know if he was in Hawaii or just like... That's true. Filled with the spirit of Hawaii. So (laughs) yeah, like uh, 1974, I mean, you brought this up that it's like it's right in the middle of Watergate, right? So Oh yeah. I feel like you've got this weird split between really paranoid media and really escapist media cuz the the singles and album charts are just kind of dire at this point. We didn't talk about it but like Ray Stevens the streak is up there and stuff like that. <laughs> Everything right. is just like soft rock and novelty hits and I feel like uh it, it it's it I can't quite figure where to position the dead in that mood. I guess cuz they're so relaxed at this time. I wouldn't call yeah. this a paranoid era of the dead, but it's also not a soft rocky era of the dead. They were certainly going to get way more soft rocky later on. So uh, this is definitely a time where they're outside of the pop culture timeline and uh, yeah, I mean, I doing think, their I own think, thing. Like, you know, like film was very much still imbued with the spirit of like the 60s and like this anti-establishment question authority type vibe. Although that was about to crash into the side of a mountain too. Like 1974 is like one of the great film years of all time. It, not necessarily a great year for like rock music though. Like rock music was definitely in the midst of like, it's very sort of cheesy, like sort of like the bad part of the seventies, you know, yeah. that we talk about and uh, you know, things would I think pick up a, a few years after this, at least certainly in the underground. But yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like the dead probably still had an audience of people that like were still living the sixties dream. Yeah. You know? Uh, and that was still very real to people. Um, and I was about to change, you know, when they came back from their hiatus, I think they were going to, they entered a different world at that time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that during that 18 month break, but we're still stuck here in 1974. Aren't we lucky? Cause now we're going to talk about Dick's picks 12, Let's do it. Let's and get into the show. And it starts in the ultimate power move 
with a, a, a track simply called Jam. Yes. And, <laughs> and that, that is definitely, I think that this is one of the things that people really love about Dick's Picks 12, you know, the hardcore dead people, is that there are a lot of jams yeah. on this on this album and it's certainly not as song oriented as like a lot of the dicks picks albums as you pointed out earlier you know a lot of the complete show albums you know you end up with a first disc that even if it's really well performed if you listen to a lot of these albums it's not as interesting because it's just them playing songs that you've heard many times before Mm -hmm. um and you're not really getting that in this album i mean you're getting a lot of exploration Right. Yeah. I mean, the, when you have the first set there, it's easing you in, right? And that was kind of how the the flow of a typical dead show went. And I think, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that it sort of mimics the flow of like a trip or any sort of drug experience where you want to kind of like dip your toes in the water early and then you want the real heavy stuff to come later. So it's... It, it's a it's a very 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 slight complaint so nobody jump on my back online about this but that is one thing that is a little bit disorienting about this set for me is that it doesn't give you any sort of uh easing in process it's just like we we throw you in in media res it's not even the start of the second set that night that cuts the first two songs of that set and just drops you right into what's called a jam though it's I don't know how you feel about it. It sounds a little bit more to me like a tuning that just happens to have a little more melody than your typical tuning. Uh, but it, it it gets right to the meat of the show without any prelude. Yeah, I mean, I'll just go back to what I said earlier where I feel like you really have to look at this album as like a collection of three discs rather than as an attempt to replicate the feel of an actual dead show. Because mm-hmm. I think if you do go into it expecting you know, that show experience uh, or like a typical first set experience on the first disc, you are going to be disoriented. You know, this isn't what they're really giving you on this album. And I have to say that I really like it for this album. I don't know if I'd want every Dick's Picks to be like this, mm-hmm. but I do feel like well, you know, whether it was intentional or not, and it, I think you're right that it probably wasn't really intentional. It seems like they just put two second sets together. But I think especially on the first disc, because you know, to circle back to something I mentioned earlier, I, I think the first disc of this album is, I don't want to say a masterpiece, that seems a little over the top, but I think it's really, really, really damn good. Yeah. Um, and I think it works incredibly well. Um, I feel like the second and third discs have their issues, uh, and we'll get to those when we get to, when we get to the, that, that part of the album, but like this first disc to me is so damn great from beginning to end and it really works to me as a complete statement almost like a almost like a suite maybe in a way more mm-hmm. you know like you, you take this as like a big block of music and you know the first four tracks essentially are the china writer you know you mentioned there's the jam section which feels like a tuning although what's interesting about 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 the china part is that it begins like with this very languid opening that i think lasts about three minutes yeah even longer Um, i think it's four minutes until jerry starts singing which is very unusual for a china cat and then if you factor in you know that that little tuning part i mean it really i mean it's even longer at that point Mm -hmm. and um you know listening to other uh china writers from june i feel like that 
separates this from the other China writers, at least from the ones I heard. I could be wrong, but like I don't recall another China writer starting like this. Mm-hmm. And um, it's great. I mean, I love it. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I feel like, I mean, one thing maybe we should just address right away is, I mean, I've heard people call this the best China writer of all time. Right. Um, do How do you feel about that? I think it, I am not going to like be so absolute as to call it the greatest because I haven't heard all 250 of them or whatever there are. Uh, it's probably my favorite. And I think it really does stand out. Uh, the weird thing is, it, it is that until really researching this volume, I didn't. I've always thought like the the part between the China and writer is what makes it special. Uh, but you listen to a lot of the other seventy four versions, and they all kind of get to that same space. And we'll talk about it in a minute. The theme between China and writer. Uh, but yeah, you're right that I think what really sets it apart is that it has this long, very patient, vampy intro on the China Cat chords, which if you think about it, usually China Rider, the, the jam part of it uh, between China and Rider is based around the Rider chords. So it's more of like an I Know You Rider jam leading up to I Know You Rider proper. Uh, but this is like a rare opportunity to hear them jamming over the China Cat chord progression which is i mean yeah it's great i like i don't really know what was going on here if they were just feeling very relaxed and not in any hurry to get to the the song proper here but uh i love it yeah it really uh it really pops and i think that's why this is such a i think putting this right at the start of the set is part of why dick's picks 12 is so beloved (laughs) because i know for my own dead listening if i want to hear just a great china writer this is the one that i I go for because you know exactly where it is and it kicks off this volume and it's really easy to grab that disc or you know go to your streaming service and, and and kick it right off
yeah, it's it's interesting to me because we've had, you know, I guess three China writers in a row now. Like ten through twelve, all have a China writer, and each one has been better than the last. Yeah. And what really separates this one from the others, especially the one from ten, but I think also eleven is the patience that you talked about. You know, the, there is, I think, a temptation with this song at the beginning to, you know, to rock it up a bit, you know, to maybe make it a little bit more muscular. And this version, it starts out, I mean, I use the term languid, and I feel like that maybe isn't the right word to use because that has a negative connotation to it. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. To me, it just feels like kind of floating in the water, but in a very invigorating way that it's not at all aimless. You totally feel like you're in good hands when they're playing this. But yeah, it's it's not beating you over the head. It's not rushing to get to the part that you recognize. It's just going with the flow in, in such a beautiful way. And yeah, it is... The, the 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 jam part that we are you know, that we all love from from China Rider, you know that section in the middle, like where you're not sure if you're in China Land or in Rider Land, that's beautiful here too. But it, you make an interesting point about how like if you listen to the other China Riders from this month, it, it it's not like it diminishes what's on Dick's Picks Twelve, but like it does remind you like oh yeah they kind of had a routine about how to right. do that part. Yeah, I mean it, it reminds me a little bit of when we talked about the Dark Star in Dick's Picks Four. Uh, and how there was another dark star from that run that kind of followed the same path that maybe wasn't quite as successful, but it definitely was like, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing the first verse and we're going to get real spacey and then we're going to do a feeling groovy jam and then we're going to get real intense and then we'll do the second verse. So it, it maybe dispels a little bit of the magic to hear a bunch of them in the row. Um, and what, I mean, sort of what we've been alluding to here is that pretty much every... Everyone I listened to, at least from 1974, uh, every China writer had this extra theme squeezed in between the China Cat and the I Know You Writer part. So rather than just going smoothly from China into writer, uh, it had what is notated on volume 12 of Dick's Picks as a mind left body jam, but which any deadhead will tell you was mislabeled and we can get into why that might have been. Uh, but it's really, it's, it's actually the feeling groovy jam. If you go back to that volume four, dark star, it's the exact same upbeat chord progression uh, that Bob kicks off. And that dark star turns up here between China and writer. And it turns up in every China writer of 1974. So once you know that maybe this version feels a little less special because it wasn't just like a moment of divine inspiration that we're going to play feeling groovy right here and now in this jam it was like this was the pre-planned way that they played it but it still is great i mean that's splitting hairs and is very much like deadhead over analysis <laughs> to yeah. to talk about it in that way because it just works so damn well and it's like how could you improve this amazing jam between china and writer which is as we've documented one of my favorite segments of all grateful dead music uh they found a way to make it even better which is a miracle in itself and I think, again, like having that long introduction is what sets this apart. And you have that great part in the middle, which, again, like on the CD version, it's credited as Mud Love Buddy Jam. So, <laughs> right. And we've talked about this before about how like <laughs> Dick would give like quirky 
names to some of the jam sections. Yeah, and that one is a callback to Dozen at the Nick, which I think right. came out either earlier in 98 or in late 97, where they called the Mind Left Body Jam the Mud Love Buddy Jam, which is a terrible name. But, yeah. I mean, do you think he just did that on purpose just to, like, troll Deadheads <laughs> a little bit? Because I mean, he would he yeah. would know that it wasn't really that. Well, that's the weird thing is you would think of all people... Like Dick Latvala would know what a mind left body jam is and what it isn't. And the the really crazy thing about this controversy, quote unquote, uh, with volume 12 is that there is an actual mind left body jam uh, later on in the set. <laughs> but it's but they they don't mark that one as a mind left body jam, but they do call this one, which is a, fo- a feeling groovy jam, a mind left body jam. So it just gets really confusing. And I wonder if it was. You know, one theory maybe is that this was a way to expose who the true deadheads were, uh, like who listened to the tapes and knew what these different jam themes were and who oh, was just being a, a poser flag. and buying the dick specs. Yeah. Or what do they, What what's the word for that thing where the like map makers used to put fake cities in their maps so that oh, people man. wouldn't uh, copy the, the, they could expose people that copied their maps. Like it's something like that where it's like a... Uh, a bit of subterfuge to, uh, you know, call out the people who hadn't done the homework. But I think, or maybe Dick is yeah. just a dude who lived in Hawaii and smoked weed all day, and he doesn't mean, you know, he's like, hey, whatever, I'm gonna call I don't it know, this. Man. We got to think about this like Warren Beatty. Like, I think this goes all the way to the top. <laughs> it's well, a secret multinational corporation. Uh, I don't know, man. Wants to trick you into getting the wrong Grateful Dead jam. I'm feeling a sniper's scope on me right now. I feel like if we keep talking about this, it's getting too we, real. We're gonna have we're gonna be driving in our car and the brakes are gonna go out and we're gonna end up in a lake somewhere. <laughs> so maybe best to move on. But anyway, <laughs> killer opening, obviously. Yeah. To disc one of Dick's Picks Twelve, that four track progression. Uh from there we go, and again, this is part of the quirkiness of Dick's Picks Twelve. We're going into the beer barrel, barrel polka, <laughs> right? A little bit of like just kind of like a guitar doodle. It sounds like essentially. Well, like another moment of tuning, and it, you know, it, it. I think this is a realistic portrayal of Wall of Sound shows because as amazing as the Wall of Sound could be, it also was just a technical nightmare, and I, there was even more tuning than you would normally get at a Grateful Dead show while they were working out the kinks. So I think this set actually had quite a bit of technical problems and might be why this set uh, starts in media res, uh, chopping off the first couple songs. Uh, So, you know, there was a little bit of a tuning jam before China Cat, and now we get the uh, Beer Barrel Polka tuning jam. But I have to say that as a Wisconsin native, this warmed my heart to hear the dead play the beer barrel polka. This is a huge song for all Scanies out there. I lived in Milwaukee for about eight years, and uh, they used to play the beer barrel polka during the seventh inning stretch. So, right. And does Bernie the Brewer slide down the slide to the beer barrel polka, or is, uh, no, uh, is that a separate that, thing? I think that's just for home runs. Okay. I don't think he did that for the beer barrel polka. And he kind of came <laughs> in later, too. So, But anyway, it warmed my heart to hear the dead do that. So, uh, And that's a Dick's Picks debut, and I think it's the only 
Bix Pick's appearance for the beer okay. barrel polka. I gotta look so, up the beer barrel polka now. <laughs> uh, I've heard them do that in other shows, I think. Uh, but I don't know. No, I, here, beer barrel polka has better representation in the Dix Pick series than some very well known Grateful Dead songs. It's gonna show up three times. Really? Yes. And very Holy soon, smokes. the second one comes uh, in just a couple episodes, it sounds no like. No kidding. And I still can't get a feel like a stranger in any show. But we're getting beer barrel <laughs> poker exactly. three times. That's okay. I appreciate, you know, if I, that's a, that's not a bad consolation prize. <laughs> um, from there, we go into trucking. And I was curious about this. You know, we've obviously had some controversial Grateful Dead song opinions in this show so far you know we've and we don't need to revisit some of the <laughs> yeah, songs that we've dissed i don't know what you're but, talking about but uh, <laughs> well we're going to talk about one of those songs later in this episode i'm curious to hear your your, oh, your opinion on that but i remember seeing some people on our twitter page say well you know one dead song i can't stand is trucking and i heard a lot i've seen a lot of people complain about trucking and um and maybe it's just because it's one of those songs that is uh so associated with the dead it's kind of a party song it's got like kind of a boogie rock quality to it mm-hmm. um but i was a little surprised to see that because i personally love trucking and i think like for all of the sort of good time trappings you know good time boogie rock trappings like the lyrics are really great and i feel like especially at this time they would always take the song in interesting directions and like i love how the truck in, in this show sounds. I, and it, this is definitely like um, an example of them playing that song and then kind of going off into like a really cool jam. From yeah. There. But like, how, how do you feel about trucking? I think, yeah, I think it has the knock that it's very much a dead one Oh one type of song, like a greatest hits fan type of song. And the, you know, the long strange trip line has become almost a cliche in talking about the dead uh just for how often it's used but yeah as you say particularly at this point trucking was as much of a improv launch pad as dark star was really uh it was sort of bob's i guess when they weren't playing playing in the band this was bob's featured improv set piece though actually you know there's another bob improv set piece in this set both of the really long jams come off of bob songs which is part of what makes this volume so unusual. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I got no beef with trucking. Trucking is great. It's, you know, they, he keeps forgetting the words, which is always fun to hear. And <laughs> right. I, I got to say on the family road trip, trucking was probably the most popular song. I was <laughs> going to say. The, uh, family members. Well, and that's why it's Grateful Dead 101, because even the noobs can get into yeah. it. The three-year-old it, really was into, uh, you know, looking for trucks on the highway and <laughs> hearing it. And I was like, hey, this is a song about trucks. Yeah. Well, you mentioned how, like, a lot of the jam vehicles uh, in this on this album derive from Bob songs. I feel like Bob in general is very audible on this record. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe you don't hear Keith as much on this record as, as yeah. we've heard on some of the other Dick's picks. And of course we always like to hear Keith. So I think that's the knock on Candelario recordings. Is that yeah. oddly enough, since he was Keith's tech guy at the time, Keith is kind of lost in those mixes. I also felt like you didn't hear as much Billy and maybe it's just coming off of DP 11 where we were 
so in love with Bill's drumming and he was so clear and upfront in the mix. And I feel like he's a little bit lost in this mix, but yeah, it's, it's more of a guitar heavy mix. But, but I, I gotta say like Bob really shines on this yeah. album and yeah. the, the, the guitar interplay between him and Jerry um, is like, I think it's center stage on this record. And, you know, as much as, you know, we want to hear those other guys in there and maybe we'd like it to be a little bit more balanced. I always do appreciate being able to hear Bob a little bit more clearly because, you know, again, he's such an eccentric guitar player. And I know for me, like for a long time, it could be hard to hear him on certain records. And, and, and so just being able to appreciate what he brings and how he plays off of Jerry, uh, it's always great to be reminded of like how much Bob is bringing to the table as a guitar player. And, and uh, yeah, he's, he's really holding his own here uh, all over this record. Um, from Truckin', we're going to go into a couple different jam tracks here. Because as we said before, this this whole album is very jam heavy, and that's especially true of the first disc. We go into this other one jam from Truckin', and I feel like you know, I mean, this is something. You know, I, I think we talked about this in, in the Dick's Picks Eleven episode. This is something that the Dead would often do: start with Truckin' and then kind of go into like some variation of like you, you you hear the other one riff, and sometimes they'd played for a long time, but on this album. They go there and then they they ditch it pretty quickly. Yeah, well, they go there multiple times too, which is what's kind of fascinating to me. Uh, this this whole jam is a really interesting case study in the band's process, I would say, because you hear this a lot in Dead shows where they they map out some of the set lists but not all of it, and then they kind of leave it up to you know, wherever the jam takes them. And you can hear different band members introducing or suggesting what song they should go into next. And as you say, Truckin' and the other one was a pretty standard pairing. And so it seems like a very logical move here. But you hear, I think, not just Phil, who is typically the one who kicks off the other one, uh, but I think you hear Bob and you hear Jerry at different points, like very strongly suggesting that we, Hey, we should play the other one next. And it keeps getting shot down, <laughs> which is fascinating to me. And it, it's not always clear who is the one who says no, like maybe there was some body language that we can't obviously see on the, on the album, but it's very clearly heading towards the other one. And then it just gets completely sidetracked into a different direction. Well, do we want to talk about Phil's uh, bass solo here? Or, oh, well, I mean, we got to talk about the bass solo. I mean, this shows how far we've come from volume one of Dick's Picks, right? That we pretty much have the same Phil bass solo. Uh, maybe a slightly better quality than what we had in volume one. So that well, what we didn't have in volume one, because infamously he made Dick cut out three minutes of bass solo from the very first Dick's Picks. By this point, Phil Lesh, 1998 Phil Lesh, does not care what they're putting out on Dick's Picks. He has checked himself out of the whole process. Uh, so Dick was able to sneak the Phil bass solo in there. Uh, I don't know. What do you think of the bass solo? Well, I mean, I'm not even sure if we can call it a bass solo. I mean, it, it doesn't go on for very long, which is... Yeah, it's pretty tight, I guess. The yeah. best thing we could say about it. It just sounds <laughs> like he was maybe contemplating doing a solo and then he was like oh fuck it and he started playing the the other one riff i mean just the way he's vamping on the bass and it's like really loud and rattling it reminded me of like watching like 
videos of Kiss from the 70s, like when Gene Simmons would do like God of Thunder. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of had that quality to it. And, you know, we were talking about like where does the dead fit in with 70s culture. I mean, I feel like a bass solo is like a pretty arena rock type thing to do. Right. Um, you know, like, cause, like cause even in the world of the dead, I feel like Phil, he's not really known as like a standalone soloist. I mean, he, he, I was thinking about like him on the China writer. I mean, he's like soloing in that song a yeah. lot. I mean, it, he's very audible and he's like all over the place and it sounds great. Um, that's what you want from Phil, like kind of going all over the place in the framework of a, of a dead song. You don't really want him just going off on his own. You know, right. it's pretty boring. Um, what is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And it does end up going in a very fruitful direction because, you know, as you were saying, like it seemed like someone kept vetoing, you know, going deeper into the other one. But then instead of doing that, we go into Spanish Jam, which has yeah. also been credited as Spinach Jam, like on <laughs> right. other Dick's picks. And we talked um, about it with Volume Six, which was right. uh, an '80s Spanish Jam. Uh, but yeah, I think. So Phil, I think the Phil bass solo was pretty common here and was also a way to turn it into the other one because he would come out of the bass solo with the the other one roll, as the deadheads call it. Uh, but what I think I realized with this one is that the bass solo was also Phil like demoing the wall of sound, <laughs> more or less. Uh, because it, it, all the accounts of the wall of sound, like Phil was way more into it than the rest of the band. And they, I think we mentioned this in a previous episode but he had like separate speakers for each string of his bass in the wall of sound and he also had like crazy panning effects which they try to recreate uh during this bass solo on volume 12 so the bass solo seems very self-indulgent but is also like phil showing off the band's new toy and probably sounded pretty incredible to people who had heads full of drugs in 1974 uh so i don't want to slam it too much but yeah it's it you know it self-indulgent is the word for it i guess like there's there's no getting beyond that but yeah so he tries to trigger the other one and i think in this case at least you can hear that billy is the one who says no i don't want to play the other one because he starts playing like this sort of martial drum beat which does not really fit into how the other one should go at all and uh yeah the 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 band plays off of that into the Spanish jam which sounds pretty pretty amazing in this case. Yeah, and the Spanish jam of course is based on a Miles Davis piece called Solea from the album Sketches of Spain and I feel like this jam is an example of something we've talked about in previous episodes of you know the dead at this time really going into that sort of fusion world. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, in our last episode, I think we used the word jazzy several times to talk about <laughs> the dead in 73 and 74. And this jam is, you know, a perfect example of that. Yeah. And I love it when the dead go 
into this realm. I mean, I love fusion era miles and I, I like it when the dead meet miles in the middle, you know, they're doing a little bit of miles, but they're also doing miles, doing the dead. Like when Mm -hmm. you do this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, it's just one of those jams that like, I was pretty much riveted from beginning to end. I, I, it's beautiful. It starts off like, you know, pretty, and then it kind of goes off into some pretty dark zones. I mean, there's another jam that we're going to hear later on in this album that I think maybe overshadows this a little bit, perhaps. Um, yeah. But I feel like in the context of this disc, you know, again, thinking of like each disc as its own separate entity, um, I really like where they went on this. And in a way, I feel like if you look at it by itself, it might not be as a, as impressive as a jam as you're going to hear on disc three, but I think in the context of this disc, like overall, like in the flow of the show, it really works well. Um, And it's really satisfying. I have a confession to make. I've never been much of a golfer. I mean, look, I've done mini golfing before, but that game where you walk around a big field with other old people and you swing balls and you hit them really far, I've never really done that game before. To be honest with you, it never seemed very rock and roll to me. But I'm willing to change my mind. And 
I think I'm going to start doing it now because of this company called Sinlon. Sinlon is an environmentally friendly company that makes turf for businesses and homes. And they make it from eco-friendly ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. And right now they're doing this really cool offer for 36 from the Vault listeners where they're giving away basically... It's like a putting green. They call it a putting green system. And apparently it's revolutionary. And I'm going to take their word for it because it sounds really cool. But basically, this is something that you can put in your backyard and you can become a master golfer by practicing on this putting green. Uh, So I'm going to give it a shot. And I think you should too. What you want to do is you want to go to www.sinlon.com backslash 36FTV. Again, that's sinlon.com backslash 36ftv and you can enter in for a contest to get this free putting green and become a master golfer with me yeah we diverge a little bit here i also prefer the disc three jam but i like the first six minutes the like really proper spanish jam part of the spanish jam track a lot a lot a lot uh, after that, I feel like it's a little directionless for me. It gets very spacey, as you say, and it, but it doesn't really have a lot of momentum for, I think it's like another nine minutes <laughs> of that track before they eventually wind down to Warfrat. And so like, I, I probably could have used a little bit of a shorter transition there. Uh, and again, we're splitting hairs on what is a really fantastic edition of dicks picks and i don't want people to jump down my throat for saying (laughs) anything even slightly negative about it but this is really where this jam is uh of lesser quality and for my taste than the disc three jam because the disc three jam i feel like doesn't have a dull moment in 20 some minutes whereas this is sort of the stretch that i get a little bit distracted yeah i mean if we're going to compare it to the Disc 3 Jam, then yeah, I would agree. But I think that's a pretty high standard. Yeah. Um, and I feel like not being quite as good as that isn't really a black mark against what they're doing here. I mean, yeah, I, I still yeah. think, again, in the context of like the entire disc, I think it works really well, the back half, which to me, it wasn't directionalist. I understand what you mean. It is a little more maybe abstract. And I could... You could maybe say like they didn't totally know where they were going with that, but at the same time, it's like the tones are so good that mm-hmm. I I really don't care. Like it still sounds like pretty amazing, and the way it ends up going into Warfrat um, really works for me. And I think again, like when you listen to disc one as its own thing and not look at it as like, well, this is trying to replicate a first set or like an early part of a show. I think that this Warfrat works a lot better because yeah. otherwise you'd be like, well, why is Warfrat on the first disc? You know, this is a song that you would typically hear towards the end of a show. And I really like how, and I mean, really, I mean, they're calling it from the second set, I guess, of, of, of 626. So it technically is like coming late in a show. But like in, in terms of the context of this album, I really like, how this disc has its own arc, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it really takes you on a journey. And I feel like, you know, even though we're only talking, I guess, about like an hour's worth of music or so, 
like I feel like it earns Warfrat at this point. Um, oh, yeah. like, I feel like oh, we've landed at a place. Like I've gone on a journey with the Spanish Jam, and now we're at this you know beautiful, uh, you know slow moving ballad uh, that Jerry just sings. Super beautiful, I think. Yeah. This version. Yeah, it's a perfect spot for Warfrat for sure. I just wish it had maybe started a few minutes earlier. Is my very, I wouldn't say a black mark. I would say it's a very, very light gray mark. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, this Warfrat is tremendous. And it, it like brought something to mind that I don't think we've talked about very much so far, which is how good Jerry was at vocal improvisation. Because right. he sings, he sings this Warfrat very unorthodox. I think uh, he kind of, you know, takes the verses in some really interesting directions and holds out some words longer than normal, or sings some things a little higher or lower than normal. And I really like it. It really keeps you off guard and f- helps make it feel even more emotional than your typical Warfrat, which is already, you know, even a standard version is going to be a very moving song. Uh, but he really pours a lot of soul into this particular version, and it 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 pops. Yeah, I feel like what's really been a standout of these last two Dick's picks that we've talked about, you know, eleven and twelve, are the vocals. You know, and this mm-hmm. is obviously something that people always talk about with the Dead, how their vocals can be a bit hit or miss. But you really feel like listening to these albums that, like, when. Um, the band was on vocally it really was a major component of like what their music was and like why it worked so well mm-hmm. and i think i mean i think jerry generally was always like a really good singer yeah even as, even going into the 80s like when his voice started to fade um he still found a way to wring emotion out of his ravaged vocals and and yeah. make it work especially on like those slow moving ballads um yeah, We're even go- in the '90s too, he was starting to grow into being uh, almost developing like a late career voice that wasn't quite what it used to be, of course. But right, you, you know, you think if if Jerry had lived ten, twenty years longer, you know, he wouldn't have pulled like a Dylan and become like you know Tom Waits gravelly. But you know, you can really hear the years in his voice, and it works really well for him. Right. Well, especially since he's singing like all of these like death ballads. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when his voice sounds more vulnerable, even if he doesn't have the power that he did when he was a younger man, it just he makes it work in yeah. the same way that Dylan does. I mean, Dylan mm-hmm. started singing like, well, I mean, he always sang about death, but he was really leaning into the death thing. Like when his voice sounded like it was decomposing on record, yeah. and it totally made it work. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, we're going to go into Sugar Magnolia. The first of three Sugar Magnolias, depending yeah. on, on how you dice it. Yeah, Big big Sugar Mag album, which I think ultimately is a negative for this album for me personally. <laughs> yeah. A little too many Sugar Mags. It's like the it's the triple mag. You know, we talk about the, the triple berry. Yeah, that's you true. The, you got the triple mag. Um, but again, this... You know, this placement on the first disc, it just reiterates again that feeling of like this disc being a standalone thing. I think Bob at the end says good night. You can hear him say good night at the end of the um at the end of the song and at the end mm-hmm. of the disc. And I guess it was the end of their set proper and then Eyes of the World was going to be the encore uh for mm-hmm. 626. Um I think you and I disagree a little bit. I I actually like this Sugar Magnolia the most maybe because it's the first one 
I think it's like the best placed out of the Sugar Magnolias. Like it makes the most sense. Um, even if like the performance is a little, uh, maybe it's not as like polished as some of the other ones. Um, it's the one that worked the most for me. So I could have just made do with this one Sugar Magnolia and like gotten rid of the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, I'll say that I really like this Sugar Magnolia. And, I, and, and to me, like as, as I said before, I think this first disc, I will say Masterpiece, that's going over the top. But it is a excellent, excellent disc on this album. And I think this ends it really well. Yeah. Well, I just... that. You're outrageously wrong about what Sugar Magnolia is better on this set. <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm looking for any like point of disagreement <laughs> on what we both agree is an a, an excellent dick picks, but I'm going to I'm going to die on this hill where I think uh the first Sugar Magnolia is I it, it's fine, but I th- I think the preceding, you know, 30 40 minutes of Truckin and Warfarat and all the jamming in between has got them in this sort of sleepy, relaxed mood that I find it quite jarring that they go into Sugar Magnolia. Uh, and I understand, as we've talked about ad nauseum, why Bob would end with an, an up-tempo number. Uh, but I almost feel like it catches uh, Jerry off guard a little bit. I feel like some of his solos are a little uh, like lagging behind the song a bit because they had been in such like a spacey zone for a half hour leading up to this. And the thing I like, and we'll talk about it when we get there, but the, the, the second sugar Magnolia, and I guess the third sugar Magnolia, depending on how you define it, uh, does one of my favorite things that the dead does with a set. So this just very standard set closing sugar Magnolia doesn't sell it as much for me. So, well, I'm, I'm obviously furious at that opinion. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna brawl about that when right. we get to Dropping the other the mags gloves about Sugar Magnolia. Yeah. Um, okay, so we go. Let's go over to disc two here. And as I said before, uh, this two starts with Eyes of the World, which was the encore of the six twenty six show. And as I've said in previous episodes of this podcast, Eyes of the World is my favorite Grateful Dead song. I believe this is the third Eyes of the World that we've had. Uh, on a Dick's Picks, and it's the first from what I consider to be the prime of Eyes of the World, and I think most people would probably say is the prime of the song, which is you know from 1974. So I was, of course, thrilled to see it on this album, and I think this is a great version of it. Um, if I am going to quibble, though, I was disappointed by how the song ends because this yeah. is of course the encore song when i looked at the set list i thought oh cool they're gonna go into sea stones from eyes of the world but that's not what happens the song just sort of ends to me it feels a little abrupt so as wonderful as it is and like look eyes of the world i think in 74 compared to like i think there was a 77 eyes of the world that we heard and was there one from the 80s that we heard too i can't remember what, yeah, the volume, what, volume six. Volume six. You know, I think the difference between this one and the other ones is that, obviously, I think when they played it later, they always played it a little too fast, a little too aggressive. Whereas in 73, 74, it just has that feeling that you're flying when you're listening to it. It feels mm-hmm. very effortless. And the Jerry's guitar solos that come out, uh, you know, when they, when they get out of the verses... 
it's always it's like the most it's the freest most beautiful grateful dead music to me always um and you really get that from this version i think there's other versions from this month that are much better like i mentioned the dave's picks bonus disc uh from 623.74 the eyes of the world on that is incredible i i think it's a lot better than this um well not a lot better but considerably better um i also i want to shout out the september 11th 74 eyes of the mm-hmm. world which comes out of the half hour sea stones and i think we talked about that in the dick's pick seven episode about how i understand why that didn't make the album but like it's it would have been really cool if it had. Like, right. And, That's the and, one where Ned stays out. And yes. So you got, you got two keyboard dead. It was awesome. That's an mm-hmm. awesome version. Um, so I, I was just thinking about those other eyes. And, and that one in particular, because again, I wanted Sea Stones and Eyes of the World to be packaged together. <laughs> and, they're, yeah. and they're not on this album. Yeah. I mean, it. Eyes of the World is the song that best fits the 1973-1974 dead sound in all of its jazzy swing, I think. So, yeah, it, it is kind of a shame that it's taken this long to get a 74 Eyes of the World on a Dix Picks, and then it's kind of abridged from what they would normally do with the song in this era. Uh, because it was an encore, I guess. Uh, they sound like they're just about to really take flight with a big, huge jam, and then it just kind of steers straight into the ending chords and ends so it's it's a it's a really good version but it's also not totally representative of what they were doing with the song at the time so we've got to wait a few more volumes to get one of those and we're gonna hit some pretty kick-ass eyes of the worlds like later on in this uh summer tour so i'm definitely rubbing my hands together excited to get to those Yeah, we we have this abrupt ending to Eyes of the World, and then we go, you know, into Sea Stones from the June twenty eighth show. So you have this gap between those songs, and you know, you and I are both on record as being pro Sea Stones. I mean, this is about as like abrasive as the Dead ever got. I yeah. think on stage, and you know, we talked in our Dick's Pick Seven episode about how like on the European tour, there were audiences who felt like the dead were basically like recreating world war two when they would play this song they, they felt like they were being shelled by noise right um the german fans didn't enjoy it <laughs> exactly it was like ptsd uh being inflicted on the audience i don't know how you feel about this i mean i on one hand i appreciate sea stones making it onto a dick's picks album but i also feel like if you're gonna have this song either go big or or don't go at all. Like, <laughs> only having an excerpt from it, I feel like it just 
renders it a little uh, moot, you know? And yeah. you don't really get the impact of it. Like, at least give us, like, a bigger chunk of it. It just feels like there's almost, like, an apologetic aspect to just putting, like, a four-minute clip on. It's like, oh, okay, we know this is obnoxious to a lot of you, but we're just giving <laughs> you a little taste just for the sake of completism, you know? Right. And it's yeah. a, it's, 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 that was a little disappointing to me that they that they did that. It's like, no, let's let's push it here. This is like a lot. Of, well, there's a lot of jams on this album. Let's 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 get a little freaky here. Let's put more sea stones or even the whole thing on. Right. Well, so if you go to the audience tape, uh, the sea stones on this night in Boston was 24 and a half minutes, <laughs> which they cut down to uh, just a tick under five minutes, and I think. Uh, I, so I did not listen to all 24 and a half minutes of the Boston Sea Stones. I apologize, but I don't even think they took like five continuous minutes. I think they take a couple different segments of the Sea Stones and mash them together. And the parts that they take, I find really not quite unpleasant, but very shrill in isolation. Like it ends with this big crescendo of like really high screeching tones uh, which I think is how a lot of Sea Stones ended, but you know they built up to that with 22 minutes of non-screeching tones. <laughs> so it's it's very jarring, and as I said, was not popular with the family in the car. Uh, <laughs> but I guess the uh, the idea here is while Dick is not trying to recreate an entire 74 show, he is trying to give the flavor of what a 74 show would be like, and. You know, as we talked about in the Dick's Pick 7 episode, it's a little bit of an injustice to not include any Ned at all. Uh, you know, to to do the Ned erasure like we talk about with Donna erasure. So at least he gets a few minutes to uh, show off his early primitive synthesizer. And you get to hear a little bit of what Phil was doing between sets, too. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think it kind of influences how you hear the rest of the set in some ways because you can get a taste for the outer limits of what the dead were capable of in this year and that gives you uh you know sort of sets of parameters for how you experience this june 28th set we're about to hear I gotta say that like this progression from eyes of the world to sea stones and then we're gonna have the second sugar magnolia is like my least favorite part of the album Mm -hmm. and it's not so much to deal with like the component parts it just feels very disjointed and again having that eyes of the world that is at the end of the 626 show and then it just ends and then you have this sort of piecemeal sea stones and then you have like another sugar magnolia I mean, I'm curious to hear, like, I mean, I know you like the second one more than the first one. I, I think it's just hard for me to appreciate this performance just, just because this flow is, like, so choppy to yeah. me. Yeah. 
it just doesn't work. And, and also, I don't want to hear Sugar Magnolia <laughs> for the second time in four <laughs> tracks. Right. I guess I guess that supports your like maybe this works better as three independent discs. Right. Because then you don't get you know two but Sugar e- Magnolias butting up against each other like that. But even there, I mean, I, again, I feel like the Eyes of the World, the Sea Stones thing is like it's just a little awkward to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then and then to go from Sea Stones into Sugar Magnolia, this, you know, where you're going from like freeform noise to like this crowd pleasing song. Yeah. It's like such a whiplash and it just doesn't really work for me. So, like, if, if I have a criticism of this Dix Picks record, which I otherwise I really love, I this three song progression to me just doesn't really work. That, you know, yeah. that would be my gripe. Maybe if you're moving things around, you uh, maybe kick the eyes of the world down to the end. Of the volume, right. and uh, I don't know what you do with Sea Stones necessarily. It's going to be a, a flow interrupter no matter where you put it. But I don't uh, know. I, I mean, part of my problem is that I just keep thinking of that September eleventh, seventy four, one. Would I, I? I'm still carrying a torch for that not making Dick's Pick Seven because yeah. I I did listen to the entire Sea Stones there, and I do feel like that does progress in a pretty interesting way. And there's some you know pretty discordant parts of that obviously but there's other parts that like just sound like space basically and then you go into the eyes of the world with with Lagan on it and keith and it's super fusiony keyboards in this great eyes of the world and i'm like oh i i i think maybe that's something that's messing with me on this album is that i keep thinking about that i'm like oh i wish it was like that and yeah I, I just need to get over that maybe <laughs> no that's a, that's understandable i mean that's the way uh the series progresses so yeah i get it yeah but yeah this sugar magnolia i feel works a lot better uh for a couple different reasons one i like the energy of having it as a set opener where the Jerry doesn't seem so sleepy <laughs> like he comes out he comes out firing uh, and then two this is uh, a, a very early example not quite the first but I think only the second ever example of where the dead did this cool thing of bookending the set with Sugar Magnolia at the top and Sunshine Daydream at the end so they had sort of experimented with these long pauses between uh, the end of Sugar Magnolia and the Sunshine Daydream coda, I guess you would call it, of the song. And they did, I think in 73, one version where they put Going Down the Road Feeling Bad in the middle of that pause. Uh, but this is the first time they ever did this, what would become sort of special classic Grateful Dead thing, where they start a set with Sugar Magnolia, play a whole bunch of songs in between, and then finish it off with Sunshine Daydream. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say I only like that because it's the kind of thing that Fish would do. But, you know, <laughs> Fish had to learn this from somebody. And the dead were pioneers in this and figured out a way to do it first. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's a really fun way to organize a set and kind of give it this overall structure uh, that comes back. Well, I, I like that, too. I mean, they did something. It's not exactly the same, but, like, you know, from Dick's Picks 10, the second disc, the plane and the band bookend on, on that uh, on that second disc, it's mm-hmm. it, it, it's not bookending the entire set, but it is a similar thing, like where they're telling a story through like a song and then using it as a framing device. And I like that too. I just 
already heard Sugar Magnolia though on the first disc. <laughs> I just don't want to yeah. hear it again, and I don't want to hear it three times. Um, maybe don't put Sugar Magnolia on the first disc then, and just have the framing device on the second and third disc. That might have worked. I don't know. But anyway, um, from there we go into Scarlet Begonias, and as we mentioned, this was like a brand new song for the Dead. It was on from the Mars Hotel record, which I guess this is the 628 show, so it came out the day before this show. Um, and, you know, we've talked, of course, about how they started doing the Scarlet Fire in 1977, so we're three years away from that. I'm always intrigued by these early Scarlets. You know, it's interesting to hear what I would consider to be more of like an embryonic version of yeah. them playing this because obviously it would eventually become such a war horse for them. Um, and even, I mean, I feel like it eventually overtook China Rider even. Like it's going into the 80s. I feel like they did Scarlet Fire at least as much as that, maybe maybe even more so. Um, I was really getting like a meters vibe from this hmm. performance. Yeah. Like the great, you know, New Orleans funk band. Um, especially from Bill's drumming. I mean, you know, you mentioned how it's harder to hear hear Bill on this show. I think Bill sounds great on this, and he's really driving it for me. Um, even if it maybe isn't as assured, maybe as we're used to hearing this song once it gets paired with uh, "Fire on the Mountain." Yeah, I mean the the Dick's Pick Seven version was kind of a revelation for me like how good it sounded in this early forum where it is a lot more funky rather than tropical i guess is would be the <laughs> right. word that I, and that's not necessarily a diss like i like that scarlet begonia has kind of got this like easygoing island vibe later on uh brent marimba synthesizer aside uh but uh this version doesn't quite feel as tight to me as that dick's pick seven version but i like it a lot it's yeah, it's scrappy in a way that later Scarlet Begonias would not be. Uh, so it's 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 fun to hear. I guess it's well, no, U.S. Blues. I guess was kind of the single from Mars Hotel, not Scarlet Begonias. But uh, you're right. Like this would be sort of like the we're playing the songs off the new album moments of this show uh, for the fans that were. Uh, listening to Mars Hotel at home before they they drove out to the Boston Garden. Um, another thing I want to point out about this Sugar Magnolia and Scala Begonias that you can hear on the Dick's Picks is there's several explosions <laughs> that happen. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed these too. They're pretty yeah. uh, pretty loud. Uh, there's more in Sugar Magnolia, I think, but there was another one in Scarlet Begonias I noticed. Uh, and I was trying to figure out, no, nobody seems to have identified uh, these explosions in their source. Uh, for Dick's Picks 12, but I'm pretty sure it's probably the same thing that's going on in the Grateful Dead movie where there's a dude just very hazardously launching fireballs <laughs> <laughs> from the side of the stage. Right. Uh, and I think that's probably what was going on here. And you're picking up like either fireworks or fireballs or whatever shenanigans the Grateful Dead crew was getting into at that point. But uh, yeah, I actually Google searched uh, Grateful Dead fireballs. And found some pretty interesting discussion of uh, the dude that was doing it in the Grateful Dead movie, but uh, no answers for what was going on uh, on well, this particular you know, volume. Always a great idea to shoot fire in a enclosed venue uh, that has no air conditioning or really any ventilation. It's <laughs> exactly. already hot as hell. And, uh, and everyone's hell. on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Just shooting pyrotechnics. 
Uh, you know, pretty lucky that there wasn't like a great white situation in exactly. any of these uh, shows. Um, from there, we go into Big River, and I had a kind of a unusual, uh, maybe even disturbing realization listening to this Big River, <laughs> which is that like I think I'm a Big River stan at yeah, this point. Disturbed because, by how much you liked it, yeah. Well, just or just surprised. I mean, I loved the Big River from Dick's Picks Eleven, and you know. I talked about how in that show there were a lot of songs that the dead played that I would normally be bored by, but they played them so well that it was like, oh, this is like the best possible version mm-hmm. of like a lot of these songs. And like hearing Big River again on this show, it's like, and this was like a lot mellower than September 72, which I think is a pretty kick ass era for the dead in terms of like just being like a muscular rock band. And they're not pushing it as hard, obviously you know, here in June of 74. But I was really digging it. And I feel like in terms of the Cowboy songs, this might be at the top of the heap for me, at least at this point. Maybe that'll change as we get deeper into this series. But I was really digging Big River again. Yeah, I mean, I had a a nice road trip synchronicity moment with Big River because this, this road trip I was on was driving to the Quad Cities, which is on the Mississippi River. And... Uh. The song even shouts out Davenport, which is one of the Quad Cities. So that was a cool sort of sync up as I was driving around. But yeah, I mean, I like this version and I like that it's interesting. The 74 sound is so relaxed and, uh, you know, you used the word languid earlier, which I agree with. Uh, it's it's kind of cool, I think, to hear it. In fact, even the sort of hyped up Bobby Cowboy songs like Big River or like Me and My Uncle and a couple tracks uh, to hear them not quite playing it at uh, the sort of cow punk meat puppetsy uh, style, but playing it, you know, taking the foot off the accelerator a little bit and letting it air out. And yeah, I agree. I think this is a pretty cool Big River. So from there, we go into a Dick's Picks debut. We had Beer Barrel Polka earlier as a Dick's Picks debut, and now we're going from the ridiculous to the sublime <laughs> to Lay Me Down. Uh, this is a song from uh, Jerry's, I guess, first solo record, Garcia, uh, from a couple years earlier. And, uh, man, this is a beautiful song. Yeah. Like, really beautifully played. And it's a shame. I mean, I, I feel like... It's not like the dead never played this song, but it never became like one of those go-to ballads that they would play on a regular mm-hmm. basis in the second set. Um, but yeah, you could see yeah, it. It's so good getting in the rotation with Warfrat and Stella Blue and those songs. Oh, but totally! It never, it never quite made it. It's got a real patchy performance history because they played it right around seventy-three, seventy-four. They played it a little bit in the early eighties, and then the late eighties, and that was it. So. That's part of this is the only Dick's Picks appearance of To Lay Me Down. So Beer Barrel Polka gets uh, three times the appearances <laughs> of To Lay Me Down, uh, which is a shame. This version is uh, like pretty amazing, I think. Uh, it's a maybe a weird placement. And I think I, I kind of felt like there was a reversal of what I complained about with Dick's Picks 11, where you would get this really moving, emotional Jerry ballad. Uh, like regularly chased with bob doing a cowboy song (laughs) or a chuck berry song uh and maybe it's because this set starts with a bob song but this set 
on this disc in particular kind of sounds like Bob is trying to throw a party and Jerry is like the like depressed emo kid who rolls in and is like, have you guys thought about death recently? You guys want to hear (laughs) a song about dying? Uh, So he keeps like bringing it back down. So it's a little bit of, it's the same emotional roller coaster, but in uh, reverse order to some extent. But yeah, this is good. And yeah, you pointed out that Donna sounds really good on this. You know, Donna's kind of in and out on this selection. You don't get a whole bunch of Donna. Uh, she sounds really nice here duetting with Jerry. it's so good and i mean it definitely has that like broke down palace uh type vibe to it and maybe it just felt redundant mm-hmm. on some level to them it's like oh we've got we've got enough slow jerry death songs we don't need to add another one but <laughs> no, again, this never is, enough <laughs> never enough it's so beautiful uh well from there bob tries to pick things up again <laughs> with right another cowboy song me and my Some uncle. good banner too yeah. yeah. What does he say? Here's another tragic lament of romance, love lost, and hot lead. It sounds like Bob's blurb in a book. Like exactly. A cowboy romance novel. Yeah. It's very Louis L'Amour there. I mean, I I mean that's and that's probably the best part of this uh version is the introduction. <laughs> I think I mean, you know, not dissing it or anything. I mean, I think it's fine. Yeah. Um, not much to say about it. Yeah, it's like, you know, I kind of like blew my load on Big River, you know. I it's like that's my cowboy song I'm going to on this disc. I don't really need to hear me and my uncle, but it's fine. It's good. Is this um, your uh, bathroom break then? We've kind of, we've lost the bathroom break thread. You know, last, last well, I mean, episodes. yeah, because we are just in like two of the greatest months in Grateful Dead history. So <laughs> right. I, I don't really feel inclined to ever take a bathroom break. Even for me and my uncle, I would probably still hang around. Um, would you take a bathroom break for this? Are you going to take any bathroom breaks for this I'm going to take it on the next song, and I know we're going to get the knives out for this one, too. Really? So, so we, gonna, we, we got out of the breaking? penalty box from the Sugar Magnolia throwdown. Oh, man. So you're, you're going to bathroom break next, Road Jimmy? I'm going to bathroom break Road Jimmy, and I'll tell you why. And I, I, I we, we advanced this conversation a little bit, but I think uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not feeling Jerry's slide guitar on Road <sighs> Jimmy. What? And I, I maybe went a little hyperbolic 
on our uh, show notes here. And I said this, you know, this makes you, you think maybe maybe Jerry Slide is a, can be as bad as Bob Slide. Oh man, I can't believe that, you actually the, said that out loud. I know. I was I, know. I was going to let been, you bury that. I wasn't going to bring it up. I'm I'm burying it an hour and forty minutes into this episode, uh, but yeah, people are gonna give me shit for that, and that's okay. But uh, I, I'm gonna I, give you I, shit for that. I'm not feeling Jerry's slide guitar, and I I rarely do, to be honest. Oh, and we get two songs in a row of it here, which is not to my taste at all. I mean, I was talking to a buddy of mine about this. I was like, "Do I have an issue here? Not liking Jerry's slide guitar? Is this just a deadhead, mortal sin?" Uh, and he pointed out something good, which is like, Jerry is such an amazing guitar player normally on his own when he's just playing regular guitar. He's just out in the stratosphere in his own world uh, for how good he is. And then when he plays slide guitar, he's just regular good. <laughs> like It's not like the extraordinary Jerry Garcia experience that you get from him normally. So maybe, it's, mean, maybe that's my block. But It's yeah. still... A, a, it still has that Jerry Garcia tone, though. That it's like it—he's playing slide, but you could still tell it's Jerry. It still has that very lyrical, sad, beautiful, like quality to. I mean, do you just not like slide guitar? Period. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, is, I think that's there, that's the issue a, too. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit with the Almond Brothers, where that's always been my big block. But I, okay, I, don't, th- I don't think I like slide guitar. I, think I was gonna say like if you don't like Dwayne Allman playing slide guitar, then right. like you just don't like slide guitar, <laughs> which I'm is fine. Is. Yeah, yeah. Be- because I, I mean, I gotta say, I I mean, I love Jerry's slide playing, and usually he whips out the slide on Road Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's like one of the great showcases for him to play slide, especially in the seventies. And then you mentioned on the next song, I think he sounds even better playing the slide mm. on the next song mm. but uh. um <laughs> oh man i because you wrote that in the note you, you you compared it to bob slide and i was like <laughs> i'm gonna see if he has the guts to say that in this episode like i'm not gonna bring it up i'm gonna let him not you're say let, that you're gonna give me the rope to uh hang myself but on that one it's like yeah. oh he it's like he went there it's like all right i admire your courage um but, All right. Well, yeah, I mean, let I, me let me amend that to say nobody is as bad as Bob Slide. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> in, in the professional world of music, but uh, <laughs> yeah, right. but and it's weird because I like Jerry pedal steel, which is like kind of a form of slide guitar. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like the thing I under I recognize the appeal of slide guitar in general. Uh, I just feel like Jerry's natural tone and natural playing style gets that emotional weight of slide guitar without actually playing slide guitar. And so it's, it's, it's a weird fit for me. I just feel like he doesn't do it very often. So like if he did it every song, I might have an issue with it, but yeah. it seems like he uses it fairly judiciously. So I appreciate just the different flavor that him playing the slide gives to Ro Jimmy, which is a very you know, it can be a very plodding song. It I think this version is really elevated by Bill's drumming too. Like mm. he's doing something with the drums. It's sort of this like martial beat that uh it sounds like he's soloing like throughout the entire song on the drums basically. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really not a drum pattern that I can recall hearing 
certainly like on the later road jimmies like where i feel like it it ends up being just more of like a lurching type song (laughs) which i like that about road jimmy i've said this before that this is one of those songs like he's gone that i really appreciate like when the older dead plays it because i think it gives it a majesty and and a vulnerability when they're a little bit older that i think adds to the song even if it like dramatically slows an already slow song down like a lot more uh, i think like when they play that like in the late 80s or early 90s and they and they and they really nail it it really works well for me but i really liked this version too again bill's drumming i think is great and i really like the slide and maybe we should just go right away to to, to disc three because we have the weather report suite kicking off that disc and it's part two of the jerry garcia slide conversation Um, (laughs) he just kept the slide out yeah and um kept it on his finger weather report suite of course has been a controversial song on our show in the past Mm -hmm. some like one of us has said not nice things about it i won't say which one of us but i'm just gonna say that i think weather report suite and of course this goes into the big jam that we were talking about earlier um this is like to me, like as good maybe as like the China writer at the first at the start of the first disc. I think mm-hmm. you know this ends up being I think about what about forty minutes of music, maybe forty five minutes of music. Yeah. Um, the weather report sweet part I think is completely gorgeous. Um, I think Jerry, I I love his slide guitar playing. I think Bob's guitar tone is so watery and sweet and just the way that they play off each other um i think it's just again it's just beautiful to me mm-hmm. um and uh it really sets up the jam really well so i don't know how you feel about it as being a bit of an agnostic with this song but again i feel like this is like prime weather report sweet era you know as much as like eyes of the world you said earlier like that is like perfect for 73 74 dead i feel like that's also true of this song yeah um and i think they kill it here Mm -hmm. this this is a great version in my opinion i would agree with that i'm still not super into weather report suite until it gets to the let it grow segment and i yeah i don't know you're you're making me question my beliefs by describing it that way i want to revisit it now and see if I hear what you're hearing with the uh, first part of Weather Report Suite. I love the beginning part. And I mean, and that is like it, the, the slide is pretty prominent in that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just, it, it has that same quality that like I like from, say, like Goat's Head Soup by the Rolling Stones or something. Like it has mm-hmm. a very kind of like morning after feeling hungover and, and maybe a little bit depressed type vibe but mm-hmm. a, a really beautiful melancholy feeling from mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, like, like you survived a rough night and now this is like the calm after the storm. And then it picks up obviously when you get to the let it grow part. But I mean, for me, like the whole song works beautifully, especially when they play it uh, during this period. Um, right. Yeah. It, it, it just killed it. They just killed it for me. Um, yeah, this 45 minute chunk of music at the start, I think the rest of this disc dips a bit for me. That's why I would probably pick the first disc overall, but the beginning here 
is like some of the strongest music I think on Dick's Picks 12. Yeah. I mean, this jam is incredible. <laughs> I mean, I don't, there's yes. no, there's no word strong enough to talk about how good it is. It's gotta be up there with the great jams of Dick's Picks so far and oh, going totally. forward. Yeah. And it, the fact that it comes out of such an unusual song really makes it special too. I think like if this was a dark star, which we'll talk about this in a minute. It kind of is <laughs> in some ways, but like coming out of nowhere. And I, I, I looked at some other 74 weather report suites too. And it was, it was not a given that weather report suite would kick off a half hour of improvisation <laughs> after let it grow. There's a few other, you know, big let it grows in dead history, but this was probably pretty surprising for people who were going to a lot of dead shows to see, the song bloom into such a huge exploration uh you know after after the more composed part of the song well and i think the dark star comparison is apt because you do feel like there's a narrative to this jam like there's a real progression yeah, absolutely and we were talking earlier about the mix of this show being very prominent for bob and i think whether report suite and the jam are they really benefit from that, like being able to hear both guitars with such clarity. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I feel like the guitar tones like on this jam are so great. And I, I was texting with you when I was at the cabin and I was sitting on a dock listening to this jam. And I was like, I cannot imagine like a better Grateful Dead experience. And like <laughs> listening to this jam on a sunny day, on, you know, looking at a lake very peaceful and um you know it, it does remind me of dark stars from this time uh you know from a 73 74 dark star because like they weren't going off the way the way they were like in 72 where things would get maybe more aggressive it seems like things would always stay in a pretty mellow state of mind even within the progression like even within the, in the narrative it was more about beauty than like bringing in like dark ugliness at any point. Like you don't mm -hmm. really feel that in this jam at all. Yeah. Though it does have some pretty distinct segments to it, which also is reminiscent of a dark star. Like it, this is where uh, the actual mind left body theme shows up. Right. Uh, it starts kind of around like the fifth or sixth minute. It's this sort of creepy descending chord pattern. And once you hear it, like you understand i think how the mind left body jam that is credited in the middle of the china rider is a totally different theme because i mean the just the flavors of those two jams are are very different it's like a very upbeat poppy happy sound in the china rider and here it's sort of a creeper creeper feel uh which is is very different but it kicks off an amazing segment i think where they're kind of alternating the mind left body jam chord progression with a more upbeat segment and you kind of get this like a b jamming where they play a few bars in one mode and then flip to the other and then flip back uh it's just it's really awesome grateful dead uh keith kind of pops up here a little more than he does, I think, in the rest of the show. And what jumped out to me is that he's playing some really kind of Brent-sounding electric piano in this right. jam, which is unusual for, for Keith, who you normally think of as playing more of a more straightforward, organic, grand piano sound. 
Yeah, he's, and I feel like in general, like I, you know, Keith was branching out a little bit more. I think in seventy three, seventy four, with, with different keyboard tones. Of course, not as far out as Brent would go in the eighties, but I, I, I always love that. I, I, I like it when he isn't just playing straight piano. Like where, yeah, you get some Rhodes in there, or even like a little bit of organ or. Um, you know, like in the last uh, Dick's Picks, he was busting out the fake harpsichord sound for mm-hmm. China Doll. Like uh, I always right. like that. I think that adds a lot uh, to the dead. I and again, you know, we've talked about this many times, but like whenever there's more prominent Keith, I think that's always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for us as listeners. jam and again this segment of the of the third disc um to me it goes with the entirety of the first disc and maybe that eyes of the world as like the best music on this album Mm -hmm. um and i feel like maybe the rest of disc three is like a little anticlimactic even though i think it's all good. Like I wouldn't bathroom break any of these songs. I'm not gonna bathroom break any anything here. Even me and my uncle, I'm holding it in. I'm gonna watch that song as well. Um, coming out of the jam, you know, it reminded me a little bit of like what we saw in Dick's Picks Eleven when we went from Dark Star to Cumberland Blues, mm-hmm. because we go from this jam to U.S. Blues, and they kind of jam it out a little bit. Like this ends up being like a longer version of this right. song. Well, they, yeah, they almost do the same trick that they do for China cat back on disc one, where they sort of find their way to us blues out of the post weather report, sweet jam. Uh, and rather than just kicking right into the song, they spend a few minutes basically going through the chord progression of us blues and just jamming over it, which it's not something I've heard. U.S. Blues is a pretty straightforward song. I like it a lot, but it it's the kind of song that was pretty much the same throughout Grateful Dead history, uh, whereas this is a version that lets it ride for a little bit 
for the first three minutes. And again, it's like the China Cat where Jerry doesn't even start singing until three and a half minutes into the track. So it's it's a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool version. I mean, is it fair to say that they were like at all subtweeting like Watergate and Richard Nixon playing this song or... Well, yeah. I've always like U.S. Blues always struck me as sort of like a you know they they talk about like pre millennial anxiety back in '99, like this is a pre bicentennial anxiety song or like a right. like you know the the bicentennial by all accounts was a very big deal it predates both of our lives, <laughs> but there were people were talking about it a lot even probably way back in 1974 and especially when the Grateful Dead movie comes out and like the whole first segment rotates around us blues and the uncle sam skeleton and all that i think the dead were definitely playing off of like the patriotism and sort of rah-rah usa vibes in the air and kind of uh you know taking the piss out of that a little bit so from there we go into in a way another song about america we go into promised land Mm. by chuck berry gotta get the berry in there yeah just a single berry it's a single berry um have we had a non-Barry show yet, or non-Barry dick picks? That's a good question. Got to run the numbers uh, on that. Yeah, someone's got to crunch the numbers out there and, and figure. Per- out. I, I mean, if there has been a non-Barry, it's like pretty rare. I mean, there's probably like one. It's probably volume two, right? Because there's only like four songs on volume two. I don't know. They, I think they get like an around and round on there like at the end. <laughs> I think they I could cut be it wrong. out. Yeah. Um, but I don't know do we have anything to say about Promised Land at this point (laughs) it's a good version and I think you know unlike the 626 show yeah there's no Barry on volume 2 sorry there's not Fade Away which you know depending on your opinion is sort of like a Barry adjacent song but uh, yeah the uh, you know Promised Land kind of kicks off or maybe US Blues does too but there's a very upbeat there's a longer upbeat ending to the june 28th show than there is for june 26th which kind of to my view abruptly tries to go upbeat at the end with the sugar magnolia but here you get a little bit more of like a liftoff where you come out of this very deep space of the weather reports we jam and you get u.s blues and promised land uh going down the road feeling bad so it's kind of like a nice little trio of rockers uh here at the end of the set yeah, so we have Going Down the Road Feeling Bad, and I think this is the first one since Volume 2. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yeah. And, of course, that was a 71 show, and I know you were a big fan of, yeah. the, of, of the Dick's Picks 2 version. And I tend to think of this song, and I mean, they've played this song throughout their career, but I, I, I tend to think of it as like early 70s, Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. You know, like 70 to 72 is I think when you're going to hear like the most spirited best versions of this song, um, I thought this version was fine. I mean, it, it, it has that same kind of chugal quality that like big river has, except mm-hmm. it's like, it, it's like a slowed down chugal, you know, like it, it's a mellowed out 74 chugal versus like the kick-ass chugal of like 72. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I feel like this part of the disc is a little anticlimactic for me. I I feel like when I listen to this disc, I'm not going to listen to this part, probably. I'm going to listen to the first two songs and probably feel really satisfied. And maybe the song at the end, which we'll get to in a minute. Right. But yeah, I, again, I, this is fine to me. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's all sort of lead up to getting to this Sunshine Daydream bookend, which I imagine was a lot of fun in the moment. If people even kind of could comprehend what was going on, <laughs> they may have just thought, hey, I thought they played Sugar Magnolia already and they're just playing it again. But yeah, this is, uh, you know, the first time they've really done this stretched out set long Sugar Magnolia format. So it's kind of fun to, you know, see them execute this move for the first time uh but it's not uh yeah i mean if if you've listened to this disc a lot i think post us blues you can sort of take or leave what comes afterwards yeah like i said i mean i was happy with the sugar magnolia and disc one and while i appreciate the bookend you know maneuver here i don't really need another like shot of sugar mag so um we go from there to the last song on the record another track from mars hotel ship of fools this is another ballad that like i feel like comes up every now and then uh you know but it's not one of the go-to ballads Mm -hmm. uh in the dead repertoire nor do i think it should be necessarily i mean i like this song and I and I think that this uh, version is like really good. Um, you know, if I hadn't just heard "To Lay Me Down," I might even be more bowled over by it. But I, I just—that's I, such an affecting song, "To Lay Me Down," mm-hmm. that uh, "Ship of Fools" is maybe diminished a little bit for me. But I mean, it's really good. And I, and I again like played and sung beautifully again by Jerry. I mean, Jerry, his vocals at this time were just fantastic i mean this is prime jerry singing like right here uh so i can't really complain about it too much i mean it's it sounds pretty beautiful yeah i like ship of fools it's like a good dead song that you don't hear very often so it's always sort of welcome when it turns up it's sort of a downer encore i think (laughs) and i you know i listened to the first sets of both these shows just to see if it was there was anything missing uh so we could play the whole why didn't they put this on the volume trick but uh (laughs) there wasn't really a whole lot from those first sets that i i missed uh in this you know official release but i did think the ship of fools on june 26 was a little bit better and it came in the first set and fit better in that role and was a little peppier than this version uh, there's some great Phil banter before this ballad, which everybody should check out, where he tells look, the crowd to shut up, <laughs> basically. Right. There's some good <laughs> we're grumpy gonna... like Phil moments uh, in this show, for sure. Yeah, good Phil cop uh, banter throughout. <laughs> uh, so I, I do appreciate that. But yeah, it, you know, compared to the Eyes of the World encore, the Ship of Fools encore is a little bit less thrilling, I would say. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, it's a nice palate cleanser to to end off an extremely heavy edition of dick's picks like this is advanced level grateful dead in a lot of ways so yeah it's it's a it's a clean ending and again it's been fascinating to uh compare compilations to complete shows because i feel like you and i would have maybe gone into this feeling like oh complete shows are the way to go but there's been some pretty strong compilation examples here in dick's picks that Mm -hmm. really make a case for that to like looking at like a run of shows and cherry picking the best stuff um you know 
I kind of like that they didn't settle on a format. You know, I like that we're getting a little bit of both because I don't think I would just want one or the other. And it's kind of fun to you know, compare to see like what does what does best. But I think like this Dick's Picks Twelve, it's a it's it's a great example of like how compiling shows and again like looking at each disc as its own thing and not necessarily as just components of like a larger entity uh it, it results in something like really interesting and, and and pretty great yeah i totally agree and in the same way that the dick's pick series is not chronological and jumps around to different eras i like i agree that i like the change of format so that you get some different uh takes on what the grateful dead could do in these different eras so yeah this is a version this is a volume that really sells the compilation points in a good way and creates a very unique dicks picks that i'm not sure there's anything else in the collection that really gets this sort of unrelentingly weird <laughs> in a lot of ways uh and with all the jam themes and tracks called jam and jams popping up in unusual places and it's just you know to circle back to what we talked about at the top of the show like i don't think it's my favorite dicks picks but it's certainly such a singular dicks picks that it's one i go to a lot just to listen to some things that you don't normally get from a standard dead show or a standard dead release and for that reason it's a very special part of the collection yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite either, although I will say again that I think the first disc is like one of the best discs of a Dick's Picks album that we've heard so far. Um, and also the the first two tracks of disc three, the Weather Report Suite, going into that great, beautiful half-hour jam um, is just more essential dead music uh, that you want in your life. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, if you've not listened to this album yet, you will listen to it after this podcast. Um, you <laughs> oh, you good, mentioned earlier, good Lord, who is uh, who is listening to this podcast without having listened to the Dick Spanks first? <laughs> well, you know, you never know. Sometimes you know, people want to hear us jam first, and then like we're the opening act for the Dead. They hear us jam first, and then they go hear the Dead. Yeah, we're the maybe, Franken and Davis. Yeah, maybe someone out there is doing that. You know, you mentioned earlier about how fun it is to jump between different Dead eras. You know, we've been stuck in the early 70s for the last two uh, Dick's Picks. Uh, now we're going to go into the Brent era for Dick's Picks 13, going back to the 80s, uh, May 6, 1981, Nassau Coliseum, Uniondale, New York. Uh, I'm excited to go back to the Brent zone. We haven't seen Brent in a long time. Yeah, I honestly am too. And I like, uh, I, 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 I kind of want to get a little more into the 80s. Like, we've, I think, well established that 72, 74, and 77 are great dead years, to nobody's surprise. So let's dig up some gems from some years that are maybe not as well regarded. And so I'm I'm ready for this one. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to our Dick's Picks 12 episode, and we will be back in a few weeks with Dick's Picks 13. Yep. Take care, everyone. See you all next time.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit 1 million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top 5% of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode and don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached 1 million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.